Hey everybody, it's Richard, and what an episode of Phone Booth Fighting we have for you this week. As you know, the uh, MO is for myself and Frank Mir to get together once a week at his house, sit up late at night, and talk about mixed martial arts and life. And uh, this is maybe the best example of us ever doing that. We uh, start off talking about MMA. We jump down a deep, deep political rabbit hole, grapple with each other down there, all the way down, all the way back up, and then we end up talking about fight night that uh, took place this past Saturday night at the MGM Grand. So if you're a mixed martial arts fan, don't worry, rest assured, there's plenty of that for you. But uh, if you're a fan of the deeper, more intellectual side of Frank Mir, that's right, did you know there was one? There definitely is one on that mixed martial artist then you're gonna hear a lot about that in uh, this episode. So what I decided to do was just throw this whole thing up unedited. This is uh, a version that the terrestrial radio listening audience most certainly is not going to get. I don't think they could handle it. I think it would break the radio station if we did that. It would certainly break their format for an extended period of time. So uh, you phone booth fighting podcast listeners, you guys are the only ones who are getting this version of it. So uh, you're welcome, or I'm sorry, depending on your reaction to it. But uh, if you listen to us in Las Vegas or Reno on the terrestrial radio dial, we appreciate you listening. And you're going to probably wonder if you hear that version, why it's entirely different. But that's one of the things we like to do. We like to uh, give you uh, two reasons to listen if you're in those areas, and certainly one good reason if you're a Phone Booth Fighting Podcast subscriber. Numbers are going up every week, and we really appreciate seeing that. Our sponsors, Real Water and TrentCotney.com, certainly appreciate it as well. So without further ado, let me get out of my own way and bring you myself, Richard Hunter, and Frank Muir with this week's edition of Phone Booth Fighting. Oh, oh, oh. You're listening to Phone Booth Fighting, coming at you for another week from Mir Manor, the residence of Frank Mir, the two-time UFC heavyweight champion. I'm his co-host, Richard Hunter. We are brought to you by our fine sponsors, Real Water and TrentCotney.com. we got a couple of uh, bottles of Real Water pulled up at the ready because we're going to be doing some talking. When we do some talking, we got to stay hydrated, plus... Uh, Frank is in training camp for the Mark Hunt fight coming up in Australia, March 19th. But you know what, Frank? You're not the only person in training. I'm in no, training. No, it's true. In fact, your competition's coming up sooner than mine. So That's right. You're peaked up a little bit higher than I am. Did you notice? I didn't know. I wasn't going to point it out, but no, obviously I, I you must have tell. noticed I mean, when I came in. You're, uh, I mean, you know, your vegan diet keeps you pretty lean to begin with. But yeah. I can definitely see a little bit more vascularity. Mm-hmm. And, so new. And, and honestly, the biggest difference is uh, you got that look. Mm-hmm. That look of uh, you know the eye of the, eye the, of the tiger man. You oh, know, the tiger! When, yeah, when a guy gets kind of close, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. To that battling, I know. Reflexively, as as good of a friends as we are, you you kind of leaned in close to me when we were uh, unloading our cars, and I I kind of I was I've seen about, that you yeah. didn't like me getting anywhere near your back. Mm-mm. No, I no. saw that. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it. Uh, I, I started to defend my neck for no reason whatsoever. Um, so yeah, well, I, which is probably a good thing because you read my intentions. Because I saw your neck, and mm-hmm. I'm getting close. And you know, Mark Hunt's neck, I think about a lot. So yeah, I'm a little bit of a neck hunting mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. If you're wondering what we're talking about, Frank's uh, Frank's big fight is going to be televised, of course, March 19th on uh, Fox Sports One. Uh, mine, I think they're still trying to get the television contract worked out on. So I don't know. So many different sponsors there. They're trying to jump in on right. it. You know, it's just, it's a mess. You yeah, know? you may have to end up streaming it uh, online on my own personal YouTube channel after the fact with the video that's recorded with my girlfriend's iPhone. But nonetheless, there'll be a way to see it. I'm going to be in the Naga competition, the North American Grappling Association on. Uh, uh, February 20th here in Las Vegas. I'm very excited about this. It's my first tournament ever. So uh, we'll be uh, talking about that and making uh, a ridiculously unnecessary big deal out of it uh, as we go at my behest, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, Frank and I are sharing. I mean, we're not only both in training, but we share the same head coach. We've got Ricky Lundell. Absolutely. So I was over there training at the Lundell compound this morning. You're very blessed to be able to work with him at an early stage of, you know, relatively early stage of your uh, grappling career. Yes. You know, being a blue belt in jiu-jitsu and already getting great information because, you know, uh, not that I didn't have great coaches also, uh, you know, before Ricky. But, you know, obviously, you know, Ricky's, on, you know, he's, he's a different level of an individual combining the grappling, you know, the, the wrestling with the jiu-jitsu better than most. And uh, and so there's sometimes there's things that I do that I've had to relearn. And, you know, anybody in any sport will tell you sometimes, it, you know, most time often than not, when I talk to an instructor in any facet of the world, mm-hmm. rather work with somebody who's a blank slate than somebody that already kind of has establishment of, a, you know, a certain reflexes and motions and ideas. You know, unlearning things is sometimes more difficult than actually learning in the first place. Right. And that's where I come in. Blank slate. There wasn't a lot to unlearn. Yeah. <laughs> who, who played in that movie? Blank slate? Was it uh, David Spade? That was a movie? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they call it Blank Slate. Oh, it was an old probably B movie type. Yeah. I remember seeing it as a kid. Uh, oh, you know, hey, we have Google. Spade I believe so, movie? wasn't it? Okay. Oh, hold on. All right. So as we're going, keep going. Yeah, we'll and look I'll, it up. We'll if you're look doing this, yeah. I'll Google. Okay, all right. So anyway, uh, that's uh, that's what I got coming up. That's what Frank's got coming up. So we we, we both have jujitsu soreness in common. Uh, I, was, I was I was I was seeing we were doing the old uh, the old uh, uh, jujitsu post jujitsu workout wobble. You know when you get out of the car and there's a lot of oh. Hey, I oh, wish yeah. there's a way to avoid that. It's funny. I was just telling, uh, you know, I was seeing, uh, I see, uh, you know, different physicians, you know, yeah. I have to, you know, I have an army of people behind to keep me, uh, you know, operating at a hundred percent, you know, obviously at the pinnacle of it is Mrs. Mir. Yes. You know, overlooking everything and making sure that like, even right now I got to have salmon and vegetables for dinner because so, obviously, uh, uh the fat jokes have gotten a little bit on the heavy side. So, uh, you know, we've been working <laughs> heavy on that side. I see what you did. Yeah, You like yeah. that, huh? And then, uh, but uh, our, our the guy that come you know our, our Bob you know the, the nanny's husband you know is a former chef, uh, uh, so he comes over and he cooks our meals for us it helps, and the kids got still a relatively healthy version of chicken fingers you know he uses mm-hmm. like brown rice uh, you know for the breading and stuff, yeah. uh, they still look phenomenal but you know I, I tried to go in there and uh, and get it one you know I was like well you know they're they're still somewhat healthy it's protein I just trained. You know, Mrs. Mira was in there. Uh, no. Wasn't yeah, she camorred your arm. I thought that was a kind of an extreme reaction. I, I wish she would have camorred me because really, 
the uh, the weapon she uses against me is a weapon that I think since the dawn of time women oh, have used against men. The worst. Oh, and it's the uh, well, I'll just fall asleep before you tonight, mm-hmm. and make sure the kids are all in the bed, and mm-hmm. uh, that'll be your punishment. And yep. that's worse than a kimura. I'd rather have just taken the kimura and still, you know. It is worse. It's a submission that does not work in the UFC octagon. No, typically it, when it, you it tell doesn't. your opponent that. Yeah, uh, most of the guys aren't looking to get a little bit of action. No, I think that you know before the fight, if I tell Hunt that if he Hits me real hard. I'm not going to put out that night. Might not motivate him too well. Might confuse him. Might give me an opportunity of a, yeah. you know, a little bit of a, a lull in his mindset that I can sneak a shot in. But uh, definitely, you know, it, it's so unfair. I mean, you know, here we go into this whole marriage agreement. I have to, you know, only, you know, it's like basically now. I mean, talk about brand loyalty. I, I'm, yeah. I'm bound to only buy water from your place, and That's I need right. water to survive. That's right. But at any moment, you can cut the water off. She's your Reebok. Yeah, like that. Talk about like authority and control. Yeah, that's right. That's right. She's your real water. Yeah, and the it's, fines are way worse with a wife than they are oh, with Reebok. You know, it's uh, it's it, you're talking about maybe you know having that that thirty seconds or so to to confuse Mark Hunt with that homoerotic statement. People are always wondering. I I, I hear this question asked by fans sometimes. They'll say when they see a face off. Uh, at the weigh-ins, uh, particularly when it's contentious, and you see the guys jawing at each other, that's always one. You know, they always ask Rogan or whoever was was within earshot. Dana, they go, "What were they saying? What were they saying to each other? How confusing would it be for somebody to have to explain you saying that to Mark Hunt at the face? I've said some goofy stuff. Have you? What yeah. You, like what? What do you? Um, what do you? What comes to mind? And who was it? Uh, you, I don't know what fight. You know, uh, it was a fight that I had actually showed up in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the opponent making a remark like, hey, man, you know, you look good. I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. well, after the fight, we'll talk. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> really? Yeah, just to be funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. It's a moment where it's like, look, we're really not going to fight. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're both professionals. If we hit each other right now. Um, one, I have to explain that to my children that I couldn't conduct myself under yeah. pressure in the proper way that I should have conducted myself as an mm-hmm. athlete and a martial artist. It's not the time to do those uh, uh, antics. And I realize that some of the guys now see that the shoving and pushing can up up their cells. And, you know, typically sometimes it gets them moved up. They get rewarded by, you know, uh, more attention in the media. Yeah. You know, that's one thing in general that the media, and, and I, I don't think it's a, I'm not mad at the media for doing it. It just it is what it is. Attention brings money, and you know, in the long run. Yeah, I'm out. Can you hear me? Yeah, I get you fine. You're good. Oh, all of a sudden I can't hear my own voice. But um, oh, there I'm back. Um, I'm going in and out. Anyways, uh, so sometimes that's actually why I think you're seeing really a detriment in American culture. We're in other cultures too. I mean, I go on YouTube, or and I see the Russians are really notorious for it. But behavior that's shocking, or you know, uh, you know, very antisocial and and sorts, Mm -hmm. the train wreck garners attention, and we all know that. Well, the more people that are going to watch me, good or bad. I mean, we've heard it from day one where they talk about like there's no such thing as bad press because it's still press. And so sometimes it scares me when I see the fighters being, you know, they see the reward for acting and doing something dumb, especially at a weigh-in. Um, you know, they shove and push each other. Everybody oohs and ahs. And, and I guess I'm more old school. I look at the weigh-in as maybe an opportunity to get a psychological edge upon my opponent, to read him, to see where he's at. I, I also 
read cornermen. You know, everybody thinks that you're so focused on the fighter, but I kind of want to see what his cornermen are doing too mm. because they have really good insight on what's going on with their guy. Mm-hmm. So seeing that, I want to see how they react. You know, and it just, you know, it is what it is. I mean, combat, you know, you, know, you do the OODA cycle, right? You know, to observe is before orientate. You, if you don't know something's there, you can't identify it. Why do you think espionage and spying in warfare is so important? Information is uh, is Montem- it's king and and so that's again an opportunity for me to feel things out and i think now the younger crowd is seeing guys shove each other and and do stuff and that's why actually i like to see that i've seen a little bit of a slight and spin where uh, you've seen you know uh, it was a couple months back during the premiere of the uh, star wars was coming out and i forgot the two individuals you know it was a ufc fight pulled out lightsabers oh, and yeah yeah you know so stuff like that, that to, yeah. to kind of like to make you know to, to make more light of it and make mm-hmm. it interesting so like and once again like now they got tv press but i don't think it did any kind of detriment to our sport because mm-hmm. and again you know we're martial artists and we're not fighting right now you know mm-hmm. that's not the fight hey the day before the fight that's not the fight we're not allowed to hit each other um we're gonna hit each other plenty tomorrow and so you know you see guys get a little crazy you know each to their own um but i i just always get afraid because especially maybe this is the father in me i'm becoming an old man I realize that my children are watching and they see that behavior and they're like, oh, wow, people are talking about them. That's positive reinforcement. So when I do something like that and I act out of line, um, you know, social media is going to explode. It's going to raise up my trending on my Facebook. So in reality, it is a good idea. Like, I mean, when you sit there and go, well, you're right. If you act like that, you are going to expose yourself to more attention, which could in turn, you know, you know, you're you're very good at that, you know, uh, as far as sponsorships and and, and whatnot. Um, It it can help, you know. Yeah, it's it's. I, I guess for some, uh, you know, obviously the, the modern example of Conor McGregor comes to mind. Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with wit. Because the thing about Conor McGregor is, he, and this is just my own comedic opinion, mm-hmm. I think he's funny. I think Absolutely. he's clever. I think he's witty. No, he has a great shtick. He's like a Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Where that's, yes. if you watch the Stephen Colbert show, Obviously, that's not the real Stephen Colbert. He's right. making a parody of any really hardcore right-wing evangelical Republican that you know is an exaggeration of some of the the more negative attributes of that yeah. particular thought process. But in doing so, you know, he brings attention to it. Like I've told you, that's why I have such great respect for comedy because it's a way of addressing. I think it's one of the best ways to address public issues in a form that disarms people. Cause mm-hmm. I personally like, you know, people have been talking about how, you know, Donald Trump is so politically incorrect and, you know, finally we're, you know, he, he's kind of the voice for people that are sick and tired of it. And, and I do think there's a balanced way to go about it, but being politically correct does bother me also. And not the person who just says something just to, I hate the people who goes, well, I'm just real. I'm like, look, just being an obnoxious ass mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you're real, you know. Mm-hmm. What I mean? Just saying something stupid and and uh, you know off the cuff that gets people to go ooh. But when you say things that um you know that maybe ring true, but they're a sensitive topic, I hate how people use the whole political correctness. To me, I'm like, hey man, that's like modern day slavery. Mm-hmm. I can't even broach this topic with you. We can't talk about any kind of idea of a sexuality or racism or homosexuality. You start bringing up these topics, the first thing people start doing and go, well, wait a minute. If you're not, you know, the minority, you can't talk about it. I'm like, really? 
why can't we have a discussion? Why can't we talk about things back and forth? And so I really feel like the political correctness nowadays is like a gag order. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to myself do it. You know, I'm employed, you know, I'm independently contracted, but I have a contract with the UFC. There's times people have asked me questions and I have a real opinion on what I really think. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to say something right. because I know that you slipped me a note and then I tweeted yeah. as, as if as if it well, was my then own. If negative backlash comes <laughs> upon me, then the UFC looks at sure. it and they go, "Hey, wait a minute, we have contracts with you know X department store that carries our gear, or mm-hmm. we're trying to get into New York, and this you know not that what I said might have been wrong and it might have mm-hmm. been what other people are thinking, but it's a hot topic, and by you throwing your hat in the mix." Um, you know, this is causing a polarization and it might cost us money. So no, you can't talk about it. So then I, and I, I think that's boring for people who wants to listen to a guy that, you know, like, well, you know, he's going to say, that's why I've been more honest. There's times when people say, Hey, what do you think about this? I'm like, I'm not going to say, mm-hmm. there's no reason for me to say, because if I tell you my honest opinion, if it goes with what you think I'm, you know, if, if I like, for example, the Reebok deal, if I sit yeah. there and go, Hey, it's phenomenal. And I point out the good points of it. People go, well, you're being a homer. Come on, man. You're signed with UFC. You're, if mm-hmm. you talk negatively right now, you're going to get that phone call, and it's not going to be a good one, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I talk negatively about it, at the same time, it's kind of dumb. I mean, who goes to work and talks trash about their boss? But I, but I wish there was a, an ability to talk about things critically. I mean, you see it big time with the U.S. Anytime if I sat there and I'd go, hey— I'm a, you know, very much of a libertarian, you know, I'm more, you know, you know, a subdivision of, you know, a Republican thought process, but I don't wholly agree with every doctrine that they comes out. You know, there's things that sometimes, I mean, just the other day I got an argument with somebody about gun control. They're like, oh man, you know, if Hillary or Bernie Sanders, you know, wins the election, you know, forget about your guns. I'm like, man, okay. Again, I, I'm a Republican. And, uh, when Obama came into office, I heard the same thing that i was going to lose my guns that we're all going to you know guns are gone um if you look at the track record and you want to go ahead and google through this um actually obama has done things to increase gun uh, absolutely freedoms. right that is absolutely right he if if you look at what's different in terms of gun laws uh from eight years ago to to now they and were stricter under terms, george w bush yes they were people don't and, realize and, that and obama uh, uh signed into law the ability to carry a gun into a national park yes that's actually that's so funny that's the point i brought up specifically because yeah. as i'm talking about the person goes well you know they called me on it going okay like what i'm like oh here's an example during George W. Bush's term, mm-hmm. if you wanted to go for a jog up at Red Rock, a national park, mm-hmm. and you have a CCW like myself, I'm illegally able to carry a weapon. I have a CCW for Nevada, a CCW in Utah. It allows me to carry in several states. So if I wanted to put a little 38 revolver inside of a satchel just because, hey, you know, I'm out in the middle of you know nowhere, if somebody cornered me, Police are definitely a far away from assisting me. So it might come to a situation if somebody of bad intentions and I meet up with each other. Um, it's just me. I'm, you know, I, or if I'm out with my kids, I mean, it's not like running's an option. I have my children with me. What do I do? You know, obviously, you know, I, I'm, I don't think that violence is the immediate answer right off the bat. It's not, I'm going to, hey, you're looking at me funny, man. You might rob me. I'm not going to throw a lead down at you. But if that, comes to it to where a person puts me in that situation it's nice to know that i could go to that level it's like okay well you know you didn't let me talk you through this you're not letting me avoid you um you know uh, it's getting to that point where now it's my life or your life well now i have a firearm in which to to at least 
have a factor and a control over my own fate. Doesn't mean I'm going to win. I could still lose. But, uh, you know, if the other guy has a weapon and I don't, eh, mm-hmm. the odds are gravely in his favor. And so under Obama signed a tour now when I go into these national, especially as a young lady, could you imagine you want to go run into a, you know, we're at Redwood, you know, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, Southern California, the Redwoods National Park, you're a young lady or, you, you know, and you want to go running through, I guess California is a bad example because of CISO, but here, so you want to go up to Red Rock and you want to go running through or Mount Charleston, you're a young lady. Um, and you're not allowed to carry a weapon. That's scary. You're a victim. All of a sudden, four guys the night before went camping, had a bunch of beers. They wake up. They see you. I mean, that has that has happened and will happen again. Obama's allowed it to where people are allowed to now legally carry and go through the process of a federal background check through the proper training, through the proper courses, allowed to carry a weapon. So that's why it's funny after the first term when he was up for re-election, people were like, oh, you know, he's, he, I'm like, guys, really? I mean, that's not a reason not to vote for him, the gun thing. I'm like, he hasn't done that. Oh, he's setting us up for the second term. I'm like, really? That, that's the master plan? He's going to go ahead and loosen him up in the first term to get us on the second one? Like, where are you? Yeah. What? What makes me mad about that when people do that is it's not honest. And I think that if I see you, let, let's say you, you know, the NRA, of course, is, is a lot of what we're talking about here, the, 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 the premier gun lobby. But let's say that, uh, you know, the NRA is, is looking at that fact. You're not they're not being honest if they don't acknowledge it doesn't mean he still has to be their choice for a candidate or whatever. But to not acknowledge that because it doesn't fit your narrative and and what people have to be market. Unfortunately, what what people uh, uh, succumb to over and over again, I think, in terms of what they're they're marketed uh, in the in this country is is black and white, the pro wrestling mentality, the good guys, the bad guys, the white hats, the black hats, and there is there is uh, uh, no shade of gray in between, right? So when when election season comes around and we see the negative campaign ads that run, what do we hear? Here's what we do not hear. We do not hear the negative campaign ad where you know you're you're my opponent and you hear the uh, voice saying, uh, you know, Frank Mir is a left-leaning moderate who's 90 degrees to the left of my opponent, my uh, candidate's right-leaning uh, uh, moderate position. So we were similar in a lot of ways, but still, he's slightly more left-leaning. Like, that's a lot of nuance in there, right? So they don't say that. Here's what they go. They go, Frank Mir is the most liberal member of Congress that has ever existed, and he hates America. They do that. Yes. Or, or you know, the, 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 uh, the opposite, you know, which is, uh, you know, Richard Hunter is the most right-wing, uh, you know, conspiratorial, uh, you know, a maniac who's ever lived. And they do that because the person watching it has to, they want them to think. Well, they not, discredit the person. Yeah. Which actually, if you study any kind of, you know, uh, uh, social economics and whatnot, you know, you have what's called illogical fallacies, right? We've talked mm-hmm. about this. When people have, they'll say things, especially if, you know, anybody's done debate or arguing, they, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called ad hominem, right? When you sit there and it's like, for example, if you and I are talking, you look over and you go, hey, Frank, the guy's passing your guard because you're not blocking at the, the head. I'm like, well, you're a blue belt and I could pass your guard, so why should I listen to what you're saying? It's like, wait a minute. If what I'm saying is true, and we can go through it. Yeah. What does me attacking you have to do with it? But our political, uh, you know, uh, whole agenda is set mm-hmm. that way to where it's 
let's not talk about what you're talking about. Yeah. Let me attack you as a person so that then I can discredit you. And, and when, I, when people do that, I'm like, that's not the right way. It's and, called an illogical fallacy. Like we've proven that that's not the right way to think. And, 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 and really, in reality, what just happened there in your scenario is your inability to defend your action made you look weak. Because you you turned the focus on me. You exactly, went to, yes. well, you're a lower belt than I am. You That doesn't have anything to do with what I just said. Right. And I wish people were more confident yeah. with what the real situation is like. Hey, look, I just want to get the job done. Yeah. So if you give me a good idea and I work on it and we look at it, then that's all that matters. Like if we walk in a room and say, hey, man, we have, you know, uh, for example, I feel healthcare can still, still be up for debate. I'm not, for what I know of so far, what the health you know uh, plan is now in the U.S., I haven't been a big fan of it. I'm not, you know, as far as the fact that, you know, uh, being forced that everybody now is forced to pay for health insurance and, you know, these large deductibles and whatnot. And, you know, basically it's like, you know, I'm never my family. We don't get sick enough. So we're on the healthy side. And so really, I'm just throwing money away. You know, and I realize it helps everybody else what they're telling me, but it's like, well, you know, hey, cash pay and do it or, you know, there's different avenues or talk. And and, uh, you know, I have so far not liked what I've seen, but uh, when you want to talk about it, the minute I start talking, like, oh, Obamacare, it's Obama. I'm like, wait a minute, I don't, why are we even talking about Obama? I don't even care. That's mm-hmm. not the point of this. Mm-hmm. The point is they actually explain to me the healthcare system, the ins and outs of it. I see that it benefits the hell out of the insurance companies, and I, and I bring up to question, be like, hey, you know, we keep talking about Obama, but from what I understand, we're one of the only civilized first world countries that healthcare is a profit-driven business. That is true. Right? So no matter where else I go, if I go to Canada, I go to England, we go to Brazil, we go to other places, you know, France, and they don't make, there's not a billionaire company off of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then, then when I start talking about these type of situations, individuals goes, well, you know, it's because capitalism, that's where innovation comes from. I'm like, really? Um, France came up with this. We, I went through the phone. The one guy that was with me making the argument, he started pulling out his phone and showing all the great concepts and innovations that have come from other countries that aren't driven just purely by the fact of well, the bottom dollar. Because, again, like, you know, that's one thing. And I hate when people get mad at doctors, all the doctors here. I'm like, you know what? It's kind of funny from what the little bit of research that I've been able to kind of really nail down. If a doctor here does a surgery, He's not making any more money than a surgeon would make in another country. That's true. It's, it's, it's the like, overhead, the red yeah. tape. Like yeah. I, they broke it down. Like for every dollar we spend in healthcare, it's like it was a it was a very small percentage that actually goes to the people that are actually doing the medical care. The rest is all the insurance companies, mm-hmm. the front office, and all these mm-hmm. other people making money off of it. And you know what that sounds like. That sounds like a privatized version of big government. It sounds like the very thing that conservatives complain about when they talk about big government, you know, taxes and, and, and red tape and the machine. Well, the same thing can exist in the private sector, just like you're talking about a big giant insurance company with big giant overhead. That's no better than what those people are describing when they talk about that's exactly big government. what it is. You know, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, someone brought up the guy that I was with. He was talking about, you know, Japan, it was like less than a dollar or something. And, and, and my stats would be off if anybody's listening. We can I, maybe we can sit through a time and actually break down the, you know, open up the laptop and look through it. But it was like less than a dollar goes 
to anything but the actual yeah. medical uh, practitioners. So as far as processing paperwork, putting in the claims, they eliminate all that red tape, whereas we have so much, it's like, wow, this is crazy. I mean, you know, for example, like, you know, I have an, I don't, you know, I have my insurance now for this year. You know, I pay almost $1,100 a month, regardless if I get sick or not, my mm-hmm. kids. And I understand it's an insurance, you know, thing. But then like now I just go to the doctor, I, you know, it's a $1,200, $12,000 that I have to put into the company first before I'm covered. Yeah. I've never spent $12,000 in the last, since my daughter, the, you know, is 12 years old. We might have spent that amount of money in 12 years. Yes. So again, it's like, well, I'm just basically giving away money and still doing what I was doing before, which was when I walk into the doctor's office, I pay cash or, you know, with the credit card, whatever yeah. it may be. I'm responsible for the fee. So it's like, okay, here you go. I'm like, oh, so once I get up to $12,000, you guys will start helping me and I'm still giving you $1,100 a month until then. Yeah. I'm like, that sucks. No one's kind of seeing this as a scam. Well, let me let me let me give you my side of it. I don't think healthcare reform went far enough. It went about half as far as I wanted it to. I would like to see it go all the way to single payer, which is what a lot of first world European countries have. And here's why. You're right that even though we got health care reform, it was a massive win for the insurance companies. Huge. They're the ones that made the best forced job. on their role. Right. That's right. I, I mean, am That's I right, right in that you, statement? You're absolutely the right. The insurance agencies yes. love Obama. Right? Yes. I mean, that whole thing. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Don't call it Obamacare, call it insurance care. Right. So so what happens in this scenario, and this is the case that I make to anybody uh, who is wealthier is in a top tax bracket, and you're in that, okay? Yes. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. Right now, someone who doesn't have insurance is not turned away at an emergency room, okay? So they end up, you, or I should say before uh, health care reform, this is what would happen. Somebody, oh, yeah. somebody doesn't have insurance, okay? Uh, well, they, they provide medical care for you no matter what. You go to UMC, you have a bullet yeah. in your chest. Right. Okay. You're getting so, care. So, so here's what's you break your happen. leg, they're going to take care of you. Right. So here's what's happening. You don't have a general, you know, a primary phys- care physician. You don't have health insurance. So you either go to the emergency room for an emergency or you may go there for something that was completely treatable, but you waited too long because you don't have a doctor or what have you. And okay? now you have a flu instead of the, you know. Exactly. Uh, so you're going to go to the emergency room and because they're not going to turn you away, that treatment is good. You can talk about overhead. You know, oh, things that an emergency I hear the jokes. Room. What is it like, you know, $15 for a Tylenol? It sure. Like a, things that an emergency room can cost thousands of dollars that would cost, you know, far, far less than that uh, through, a, you know, a general uh, practitioner, a primary care physician. Okay. So then, that, so that happens, number one. But, but people who are in a top tax bracket pay the most for things like Medicaid. Okay. So you're already throwing good money after bad over on that old system. So this idea that all of a sudden you're paying out money you weren't paying out before, I would submit that by having a more organized system, it will save the richest among us money in terms of money that they're having to pay toward uh, subsidizing emergency room costs, Medicaid costs, uh, uh, money for people who didn't have well, insurance we're prior. Okay. making me feel better because I got to be honest with you. I'm a little bitter. <laughs> sure. No, and it's, listen, it's it's understandable because this system was so broken to begin with because I've heard people say, well, you know what happened since health care reform? 
my my premiums went up or my insurance uh, that I had canceled and they told me it was because of Obamacare. And the first thing I say to them is, oh, your insurance premiums went up the first year with Obamacare. And what happened the year before that and the year before that and the year oh, before that? Going I can guarantee you they went up. And then secondly, oh, they, they, they told you they were discontinuing your policy because of Obamacare. But in years past, they discontinued policies for any number of reasons. And, and, and the, that's, that's why this happens to begin with. No, that's actually why I've always you know, had insurance for the children yeah. and my wife. But I've never really, I've always, uh, I had insurance back years ago. But then every time I went to the doctor, if, unless it was like a cold and they would mm-hmm. cover a small percentage, but... It was like I had to argue to be like, no, this wasn't pre-existing. Well, did you do this here? Did you do that? It was like a fight tooth and nail every yeah. time to sit there and go, you know, if I had an injury, it's like, well, did that occur from this? That occur from that? We're going to say it's pre-existing. And I felt like they purposely made me have to jump through hoops where most people say, nah, screw it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to bother. Where it's like, you know what? I'll just go and just pay cash. And you know, and I found out that most of the doctors and physicians in town, if you sit there and go, hey, what's the bill? It's five grand. What if I pay cash? Oh, you're not going to use insurance? Yeah, well, now it's two grand. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I'll pay you it all up front before the surgery. You know, and I mean, obviously, I have the money to do that. Right. But that's I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Unless I get something really terminal, um, I'm way ahead of the game doing it that way. What it comes down to for me is that this country has always thrived on a hybrid mix of capitalism and in some aspects socialism yeah a lot of but people, people don't recognize they do not hey social uh, uh social security yeah that's socialism right that is i'll give you one better if uh if if your house were uh were broken into and the burglar didn't have the misfortune of encountering you in your arsenal <laughs> let's say you just weren't say nobody was home okay you come home and you find your house has been burglarized are you calling the socialist police department yeah, I would assume so. Or do you call the private security force that you uh, you you hire on annual salaries? You see what I'm saying? That's Absolutely, not, the fire well, department. Yeah, the fire I don't department pay, is another one. Yeah, absolutely. You and I, our taxes pay for that. Yes, we give money. And the government provides that service. You and I, That's socialism. yes, you and I are in different tax brackets. But if both of our houses get broken into tonight, we will get the same police response. That's socialism. That and the reason we have that socialism is that is for the greater good because yeah. you it, it it does not serve your best interest for me to get less police protection because that will give rise to the criminal element, which will end up affecting you. Okay, so even though, you know, well, good, they didn't break into my house, they broke into Richard's house. Guess what? If I don't get the same uh, amount of crime prevention, they're going to they're going to be coming to your house next. I mean, that's what gives rise to a crime wave. So so that's number one. Number two, everything doesn't need to be, in my opinion, everything doesn't need to be for profit. And I, this is this is an example I love to bring up when we talk about uh, medical care. Jonas Salk, the man who invented the cure for polio, it was brought yes, to he's his, famous for this. Yeah, it was brought exactly brought to his attention at the time when he you know came up with this. the cure. Yeah. Uh, aren't you going to patent this? You'd be a billionaire. And what was his quote? He 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 looked at them perplexed and he said, "Would you patent the sun?" And he meant that as a rhetorical question, like you're out of your mind, right? If you ask that question nowadays to to big pharma, they'd be like, "Can we do that? 
Is there? Yeah. Does anybody have a patent on this? Wow, why didn't we think of that? Right. So, so the the I point think there is a chick that tried to try. Yeah. Well, you know. on a side note, there are people <laughs> that try to patent and, and own the sure. moon and do crazy things. But but that that is an example of of something that did not you know when when it benefits our greater good. There are certain things that I do not believe need to be for profit. And and finally, the final point I like to make is that a lot of people, uh, and this kind of explains the. I think the popularity of, of Trump and and uh, even people who were supportive of Romney in the, the the last campaign would say, well, you know what I like about him? He's a businessman. He's a successful businessman and he's 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 handled budgets and he's run companies. And and if you run a successful company, you run the country the way you run a successful company, then we'll all be better off. Let me tell you why that's 180 degrees backwards. The United States of America is not meant to run like a business. It's set up to run like a nonprofit. And a business, what do we do with the underachievers? You fire them, yeah, you right? Them. You get rid of yeah, them. You okay. cut the fat. Right. They say it all the time right. in, in, uh, in, in the corporate yes. world. In the United States of America, we don't fire our underachievers we subsidize them with the idea that we're trying to lift them up. Now, until we're euthanizing our weak, and there may be some people who would like to do that. And what's until, the, uh, what was the old process in the 30s and 40s that tried to come out? Was it uh, eugenics? Yeah, right, exactly. So, so until, <laughs> That's a whole interesting thing. Yeah, so until uh, anybody starts suggesting that, my point to you is that uh, we are not better served by a businessman leading the country. We're better served by somebody who's run a nonprofit. And you know, who that that. you know who that describes? A community organizer. And that's what you got right now. Now, I'm not saying that because, you know, from the left, I mean, Barack Obama has been half the liberal I would like him to be. But I really do believe that, that pure liberals and pure libertarians, and I will tie a bow with our, what started this, which was a, a, a nod to the libertarians. And I have some, some really good uh, friends in the Nevada Libertarian Party that I work with. And, and they agree with me when I say that I think pure liberals and pure libertarians have the same intent in mind. We have different ideas of how to go about it, but we both believe in the inherent uh, corruption of, of you know, big well, government, uh, power, all that sort of thing. We just have different ways of attacking it. But here's the problem. I think for both of us to get what we want, the myself, my side, and then the libertarians, we have to have a really engaged electorate. What you can have is, okay, I'm all excited about voting. I got my guy or I got my lady. Hey, they won. I'm, my team won. I'll see you in four years. I'm checking out. If you do that, that's how you get what we have now, which is really just, with the two major parties, two versions of the same party. There's a guy, Jim Hightower, used to be a uh, agricultural commissioner in Texas, and I always like quoting him. He, he had a, a quote. He said, um, uh, not only could this country use a third party, it could really use a second one. And, yeah. and so what happens is when you don't stay involved, then you get two different versions of what I kind of consider the babysitter political party, you know, which is, hey, we got you. We swayed you this four years. We'll see you in another four years. And that's why we ping pong back and forth. Yes. That these, it's new faces. Yeah, everybody seems like once they get in there, mm-hmm. nothing changes and we all get upset and we switch sides. Because they want the four to eight year fix. And that's it took a lot longer than four to eight years to create the problem. Absolutely. It's new faces 
But it's not new ideas. These are the same old no. ideas. How many times has supply-side economics been tried since 1980? A number of times. But what happens is people, they, they cult a personality. They like a, a guy or, you know, a, a, a girl, a lady, and uh, they're, they're big supporters, and this oh, person's no. going to fix everything. Politics Doesn't is such work. a popularity contest. Yeah. It is really almost like we're picking the prom king and queen, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, and real quick, before I, I lose track of it and holding on to my mind, yeah. talking about what you said earlier about that you don't get any more police protection than right. I would get. That's why, actually, I wonder, I hate our whole tax code. Because mm-hmm. then I wonder, I'm like, okay, so you're going to get the same police protection. Fire department will come to your house just the same. Why do I pay X amount in taxes and someone who makes less income? Why am I punished for making more money? So why is it? Why can't it be a flat tax? Why can't it be that, like, well, this is what we need each person to provide? Mm-hmm. How come somebody that who's successful, actually, it's like, hey, how much money are you going to make? Uh, I'm going to make $100. Okay, give me 20 mm-hmm. Hey, how much money are you going to make? I'm going to make 500 Oh, now you got to give me 100 bucks. Here's I'm the, like, ooh. That, here's, here's the problem with the flat tax, and, and this, this dovetails into my take on supply-side economics. The idea of supply-side economics being, and Ronald Reagan was the grandfather of this, the the idea being that, you know, if we give uh, the top tax breaks to the wealthiest among us, that that money will trickle down. down. That's trickle-down economics. But the problem is, if you look at a deficit chart uh, from 80 to now, it never works. Under Reagan, the deficit went went, uh, up, 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 okay? Uh, Under Bush 41... It went up, and the only reason it didn't go up more was because he raised taxes. If you remember the old read my lips, no new taxes, and he broke the pledge, and that cost him a second term. But that was because he figured out, wait a second, this supply-side economics doesn't work. He is the president who called it voodoo economics, if you remember that, when he was in the primary running against Ronald Reagan. And as soon as he got tapped to be the vice president, he ran from that statement as quick as he could. But that was Bush 41. Then you go to Bill Clinton, who, by the way— is a complete moderate. Anybody who you know convinced tries to convince you that Bill Clinton is some sort of liberal is out of their mind. He was a moderate, but what he did That's was why he worked so well with that. That is why he worked so right, well because at the time, I mean, you're his, absolutely both right. House and uh, Senate. The House was, but it, yes, you're right. Was a Republican. Yeah. He didn't yeah. have a Democratic, you know, uh, um, Congress at all. Right, right? Or, the, was, or rather, I should take that back. The Senate was the Senate, but right. yeah. So, so I mean, he had to be. That's why I think he was able to get so many things done. And yeah. If, uh, he did pretty well for the economy, didn't the, the, he? He balanced the budget. He okay. did. Wasn't the so, balance the the budget was balanced when he was in when he was in. Now he leaves office with a surplus. Here comes Bush forty three, and these are just numerical facts. I mean, it, regardless of who you like or who you don't like, and I'm not saying that I'm just you know a blanket supporter of of the people that I'm crediting here. No, but, but much facts like are much easier to explain and right. articulate. Because otherwise, because facts can eliminate emotion. Right. And when you start bringing an emotion, we start making decisions that are not based upon reality. Right. So then what happened was, so so you got a surplus, Clinton leaves office. Here comes uh, George W. Bush. He returns to supply set economics at the behest of political advisors like Karl Rove. He tries the same type of wealthy uh, tax cut, and the deficit goes up. Then they do it again. And, it, you know, he, he even questioned it at the time. He was like, wait a second, I don't think it worked the first time. And they're like, hey, you, you listen to us. We, we're going to tell you how to work this. And, of course, they used uh, the disaster of 9-11 
Uh, people who will defend Ronald Reagan's deficit spending will say that, you know, that was the Cold War and he had to outspend the Soviets. And you can talk about that. But the point is, and, and the fact remains, that that economic philosophy doesn't work because what's been proven is that people who uh, are the wealthiest among us and who are given what I would call an unchecked tax cut. In other words, I'm all for we're going to give, you know, the Sam Walton and the Walton family, we're going to give them tax breaks if they keep jobs in America or Absolutely. incentivize them, okay? But, but that's that. not what we do. We say, okay, you know, wealthy person, we're giving you this tax break. We're going to trust you to do the right thing. We're going to trust that we give you this tax break. You and keep a person your, who's already ambitious and driven you. to make money. How did they get there? Yeah, I, I said all the That's time. I was like, look at the mindset. Right. Maybe because I'm a martial artist, and yes. you're not both martial artists. I look at people. I'm like, um, you know, not that you want to stare at the past, but if we look at the trends of the type of individual we're talking about, what is your the character? past is great indications of what the future may hold. Yes, it's like, well, you know, you get a businessman who's cutthroat and you know, and and, and innovative and just you know, driven. It's like. Well, he's all of a sudden not going to start throwing money away. That's right. That is absolutely right. And and it doesn't mean, you know, being wealthy doesn't have to make you uh, an a-hole. doesn't. I've got, I, I know wealthy. I like you, Frank. You do all right for yourself. Yeah. You're a good guy. But my point is, is that when you make money, uh, it becomes inherently harder not to be one if that was in your character to begin with, because you're much more tempted not to do well, now the you have right freedom thing. not to have to answer to other individuals, yes. and now the true you really can come. That's out. right, and to me, that's where government. So you still feel like uh, that the flat tax of just doing a flat tax on all individuals still hurts the overall yes, economy. Yes, and here's the, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, why, I didn't finish that. Yeah, because because okay. honestly, I would like to yeah. hear because I so, the little bit again I know, and I'm not yeah. an expert. Never went to you know didn't do any economic classes in college. I just, I look at it and go, yeah, just yeah. tax so, me X amount of money. I don't use the street any more than my neighbor does. I'm not going to, if I, he, he burns his, his house, catches on fire. It isn't like I get six, you know, emergency mm -hmm. trucks go to me. It isn't like if your house is on fire and I'm, because I'm going to hire a tax bracket, they're not going to just leave your house and come mm -hmm. to mine. I have to wait too, you know? Right. Well, here's, here's why that would not work at this point so far upstream now maybe if you're starting a country from scratch you could talk about that okay. and that's, that's actually why i think a lot of libertarian philosophy i think it's overly simplistic but i think if you were starting from scratch it's a whole different ball game because now we can set things the way they should be to me a lot of libertarian philosophy is the way that maybe something should be and i get that but we're so far along in the game at this but it's point. not reality well yeah because it's like it's like if you max out your credit card right and you call up the credit card company and you go, you know what? I made a New Year's resolution that I'm going to start being financially responsible. So how about this? Let's let's call it even. Wipe the slate clean. I'm promising you I'm going to be much more fiscally responsible. You've made some mistakes too, MasterCard. And let's just make it a new 2016. What they're going to say is, great, pay the balance and then we'll deal with that. They're not going to go, you know what? You're right. Let's just, let's just call it even right here. It's not reality. It's not practical at this point. But the thing about the flat tax is this, that what the, the folly of supply set economics and what it's taught us is that when you give those tax breaks to the wealthy, they don't reinvest all that money in the economy. They either save it, you know, or they they uh, you know buy another uh, home overseas, or they send some jobs overseas because it's it's not a regulated uh, uh, credit for them. Okay. By contrast, people who live paycheck to paycheck, 
they put all of their money back into the economy every time because it's all the money they've got. Walmart, to me, is the best example of this. What does Walmart do? So Walmart comes into a town, and it's bad enough in a big city like Las Vegas, Dallas, where I'm from. But when you look at a small town, if you ever see what a Walmart can do to a small town. Oh, it crushes all the small yeah, businesses. They come in. And they, right. They come in and a lot of times what they'll do is there's enough room in the town that Carson city comes to mind, uh, where I, uh, was, was living for a little while. Uh, they have a wall. They, the, the town is bookended with Walmarts. They have, uh, uh, an East Walmart and a West Walmart and, and the town sits in between. Right. So what they do is they squeeze everything in the middle, all the mom and pops. Right. And they, they squeeze them out. Then all the people who worked at the mom and pops have to go work at the Walmart now because that's where the jobs are. So they go work at the Walmart and Walmart, you know, hires them 39 hours a week or whatever it is. So they can say that technically they're just under a full time employee. So they don't have to extend all the benefits and everything. They get a paycheck every two weeks. They take that check, they cash it at the bank that's in the Walmart, right. and then they turn right back around without leaving the store and spend the money in the Walmart just yeah. to keep the family going for another two weeks. And you know what that is, uh, historically speaking? That is the company store mentality. That is when, when slavery was abolished and all the southern plantation owners got the bad news that they were going to have to start paying all the black people. They said, well, that sucks. Uh, no more free labor, but I know what we could do we'll have a company store and we'll pay them, but the currency that we're giving them will only be good at the company store and I'll mark up the stuff at my own general store and it's I'll sell it back slavery. to them. Right. So, so to sum it up in a philosophy for me, it's this. I am all for uh, being distrustful of politicians. Absolutely 100%. Well, you like, get again, no argument code, from me there. We have the most complex tax right. code in any world that I know of, someone can tweet us and tell us that what other country might be more complex than we are. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, as far as the way that we're taxed, and this is a good example, you know, again, cult of personality, Donald Trump, huge applause lines at the Republican debate this past week when he said, you know, we, America is the most taxed country in the world. Well, no, That's I just fight overseas. True. Yeah, wait a minute. Denmark. I fight overseas, and I mean, yeah, there are right. some places that I out, fight right? yeah. that I'm like, ooh, I don't want to. I actually say, I've said no to so many overseas mm. fights because I'm like, nah, man, they're going to, you know, crown tax in England. Yeah. You know, go to Canada. I mean, there yeah. are some places that tax the hell out of the income I make there. See, that, and that was just factually incorrect for him to say it, but people don't know any better, so they. Well, if you would have said what I just said, we have the most complex and convoluted and mm -hmm. just misunderstood and i mean it is i mean I, I consider myself to be a person of you know decent intelligence and when i sit down with our cpa and we talk about taxes and write-offs and what's this and this is a business and i'm like you can't write this off i'm like yeah but that helps me with my you know my fighting is my business no but you can write that off i'm like really that has nothing to do but but no the irs already has it established here in this rule on this section of page 300 i'm like dude really yeah like, I have to pay somebody to help me figure this out. It's so, I mean, think about it. The the tax system is so misunderstood and so difficult. Here you have, uh, what was the gangster back in the uh, 20s and 30s? Al Capone. Uh, Al Capone. The guy kills like, you know, or responsible for killing, what, over 700 people. They couldn't get around. the guy. So smart. They couldn't get this guy. This guy, you know, is uh, an intelligent businessman, you know, has his stuff together. They got him on IRS tax fraud. That's right. what put him to jail because... 
they knew that well you know you may be smart but you ain't gonna outsmart this mm -hmm. and 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 now and i almost feel like that i that the tax system sets up to where it kind of scares people people don't want to talk about what they pay in tax or do this or maybe be in trouble because it's like you know well you know even if you do everything right it's like, well, no, you did this wrong. Okay, now we can get you, you know, criminally. It's like, did you willfully uh, avoid explaining yeah. this? I'm like, nah, man, I'm just confused by this whole thing. Like, what? I just, I don't want, I don't want the the fleecing to either sustain or worse yet increase because the American public is saci is uh, satiated with simplification. That's what I'm worried about politicians doing. I'm worried about them saying, not actually saving you any money, but what I'm worried about them doing is showing you, hey, here's a postcard. Now all you have to do is check two or three boxes and you're done with your, in your income tax, not telling you that it's going to cost you just as much money. It might even get worse. You see what I'm saying? Like, I want the yeah, numbers to back I, that I up. I wish there would be a truth behind it and not just a gimmick for popularity, going back to the popularity contest where it's appealing right. because of the surface idea of, well, yeah, this seems like a good idea, and be like, no, we are generally going to go through, I'm going to sit down with the IRS and we're going to go through the tax code and simplify it in a way that it's more manageable, where less mistakes can be made and, and people can understand what's going on. I feel like right now, like, you know, the tax, the IRS is almost like playing a game of pinochle. It's like, mm -hmm. where's the peanut? You know, it it's, is. I'm like, man, I am so confused. It, it, it is. The, the thing for me is that while I am 100% on board with, with distrusting, you know, having an inherent distrust of politicians, the, 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 the people that I distrust, though, more than an established politician is an unscrupulous business person because there's more money in it. You know, I, I don't like I just don't like the idea of giving the private sector a free pass. And I feel like we do that. We, no, we I think oversight's a good idea. Like, I agree with you. One of the topics that really bothers me. I mean, look at Detroit. It's been destroyed with that process yeah. of the fact that I'm like. We can change the tax code to the wealthy to where if you're going to build your cars in China, it's going to cost you so much to bring and sell that car back here that now there's an incentive to, to have to sell it in Detroit. And then now you create jobs, you boost the economy. And I realize it's not that simple. If it was that simple to be like, well, if we do that, Frank, you know, China's building cars at this cost and they're able to sell it at this. I'm like, well, you know, we're still the number one exporter of goods in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, no one, you know, and, and buyer. That's why when people ever make jokes like, well, you know, China's going to invade us. I'm like, if we go away, China's economy will crush. Mm -hmm. We are China's economy. Mm -hmm. We buy all their stuff. They're not going to invade us anytime soon and get rid of our, uh, our, our, who we are as a people. They're still trying to develop their middle class to be able to sustain what their country. But I mean, if you think about it, like who's the number one buyer of Chinese goods? Mm -hmm. It's us. Yeah. So, you know, I, I realize that our business has to be, you know, competitive on a global level. But I think that there has to be something that within that, I mean, it worked in the 40s and 50s. We had okay. a true middle class. Okay. Let's, Why don't we have it now? 
perfect segue, and I'll tell you why. Let's talk uh, I promise about the that. fans that at one point we will talk about punching people in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, nobody is more relieved to hear this podcast this week than Johnny Hendricks. Right. He's like, keep going, yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, we don't yeah, want to talk about any Wonder Boy stuff. There wasn't even a fight this past yeah. weekend. Just, just keep breaking down supply-side economics. But, I'm, you know, it, it's funny how uh, – we talk about this, you know, sometimes. It's funny how uh, – sometimes, mentally, Frank, you complete me. Where, like when you, our, you know what I'm saying? When I yes. thought, because it's I, definitely I, the same, different sides of the same coin. I promise you, I was about to bring up the fifties and the, and the sixties, exactly what you were about to say, because I, I always like to talk about this in the forties, the like you said, the fifties going into the sixties, early seventies. A guy could graduate high school and go work in a factory Keep it coming. and provide a good living for his family. That's what and I'm then saying. His wife didn't have to go to work too that's right and it held, it's it, that trickled down now you had a parent always home with the children we didn't have safe key kids that's right who came to an empty house and had to throw a you know a hot pocket in the microwave and could be running around i mean i have friends that are in metro do you know when most crimes are committed by teenagers during the time of when they get out of school oh, there is yeah. a crime spike yeah. between two and four Mm-hmm. Want to know why? Because all these kids that their parents are forced in their modern day society yeah. to have to both work to provide for their family. No one's watching their kid. And I mean, come on. I was a kid, too. If you give me, you know, even I was a pretty well adjusted child. If you just sit there and go, hey, man, run the neighborhood. I, I, hey, look, man, this is going to be some windows getting shot out. You know, things escalate. You know, there is an issue. And that's what bothers me. And I'm like, why can't we? What's wrong? Like, what changed that we can't get it back to that point? So let's t- let's talk about what's changed since then, because you're absolutely right. Up to that point, back in the in the 50s and the 60s, you could if you were here's the bottom line. If you worked an honest 40 hours for a living. You were going to be okay. Maybe you weren't going to be rich, no, but you, I mean, were, you could have you at least one car. You would have yes. a house. You're not yes. living in an apartment. One income, if you chose. Yes. Okay. And uh, you know, maybe a vacation once a year. Nothing fantastic, but you were going to live was a, a normal middle, middle class, class life. That's right. So here's what happened. Uh, there was no such thing at that point as the term "working poor." Now we have. To me, a completely unacceptable percentage of the population Absolutely. that that works for a living, yes. forty hours and a lot of times more, and they live in poverty. And you know what I call that? And then they have an incentive just to go on a little bit of a tangent yeah. there, where they're both struggling. You have man and wife busting their butt, can't make ends meet, and then they look over and go, "Well, if I lose my job or if I get fired, I'll actually make better money on welfare." So why do I need to work? Because I can't even make ends meet. I don't. I can't get a job good enough mm-hmm. to provide a good income. And then now, then you have somebody who's oh the welfare system. I'm like, man, it's like we're just the system seems to be set up as a trap. Mm-hmm. Like so, you have individuals that I'm not agreeing with the decisions they make. But I, I'm not going to lie to you and say I don't understand it. We're humans. I'm a fighter. You're a martial artist. I'm going to look for an advantage at all times. Yeah. You see people, that's why I think the welfare system, people feel like they abuse it. I'm like, that's because you have the working poor. You have a guy who's struggling and dying and barely making it. You know, his house is, you know, foreclosure, it turned upside down, all the bad loans in 07. It's like, well, no kidding. The people are going ahead and just getting fired from their job and staying on, you know, unemployment for a year and however long that they can run the system out. Yeah, because, you know, it, the fact that it used to be that way uh, back then. that, that you got to keep letting people know this is an MMA show. Yes. No, just as a side note, guys, we're making a joke. We're not going to change the politic topic, but this is a 
phone booth fighting. Let me tell you something, Frank. I often say that, uh, you know, I, I actually don't like sports unless it's combat sports because I need the constant threat of total incapacitation. So that leaves me martial arts and politics. Those are go. the two things that afford me uh, that very real possibility. But uh, the fact that it used to be that way in the 50s and the 60s, the way that we just explained it, but that was also in relation to the fact that, that the country at that point made a lot of things. You talk about what made Detroit great, right, for example. Detroit, look at that. Let me compare that to example to uh, by contrast to what made Mitt Romney successful, okay? So in the last uh, election cycle, he would got all this credit as a businessman. But that com- his companies his company didn't make anything. What they did is they would buy they move money around. They would find a struggling company, they would strip it for its parts, essentially, for the things that were still of value, sell those off, lay off the workers, turn it into a, a, a profitable scenario, but not a profitable company. It was bad for the workers. It was good for whoever owned it because it was the old golden parachute. To me, that's not America. Yeah, if you, actually, right now, you just made me think about this. Without grabbing my phone and Googling it, what does America produce now? Mm-hmm. Like the rest of the world, I mean, I mean, I'm being serious. I'm not even trying to lead into anything. We don't, do we do we make cars? Is it computers? I mean, I mean, I know we come up with you know a software world as far as you know the, you know the tech stuff. Uh, what do we do? Here's what I want. I want this pressure, this uh, uh, public pressure, put on. Uh, the private sector, American businesses. People talk about burdening them and taxing them. Here's all I really want out of this society, and I really do believe this would fix a lot. You know, if, if, if someone has the ability to take care of their employees, and by taking care of your employees, I don't mean making them rich, but I mean paying them $1, getting them $1 above the poverty line every year, okay? And the poverty line is is not an impressive number. I mean, you're not you're not living a great life if oh, you're making $1 above the poverty line. $8.25? Right, but uh, when that, people... A high when, school kid living at home can do that. Right, right. What adult yes. can run an in, a house... I mean, come on. Tell, I mean, I don't care if you're a mastermind with economics. Yeah. I'm going to pay you $8.25. You figure out how to make sure that your kids can have dental care that's right. and, and, and are clothed and have the books they need for school yeah. and are properly fed. I mean, that's why I'm so big into the uh, uh, four square or three square here in, uh, in Nevada yeah. because it's like we have so many people that are working poor. The number they told me was astronomical. I wish I could pull off the top of my head, but that's like hundreds of thousands of kids in our valley that their parents to keep the lights on aren't giving him breakfast aren't giving him lunch they might get dinner when they get home it's like one meal a day and then that, how successful is that child going to be and that's here in vegas mm-hmm. i mean i don't even know about other places and talking about like that's the consequences of the working poor yes to me it's inexcusable and to me if you're a business person who has the ability to treat your employees better then you do, and the reason that you're paying them the minimum wage you're paying them is because you can, because that's what you can get away with, and you're, it makes your profit margin better, and maybe if you're a publicly traded company, it makes your stock price more impressive, but you know exactly what you're doing. I wish this culture would shame those people. 
I wish we would look at them rather than, you know, oh, look at, you know, generic white businessman there wrapping himself in the American flag and, and talking about, you know, uh, uh, capitalistic prosperity. I wish as a society we would look at those people and go, you're not a good guy. You're not taking care of the people who have enabled you to enjoy the luxury that you've enjoyed. Now, the flip side of that, if you are one of those people, and there's businessmen like that, businesswomen like that, yeah. then they should be trumpeted as heroes. But I it agree. should be a case-by-case -case basis. That kind of goes along with, and I don't, it slightly relates. But I like, you know, for example, you know, because my father's from Cuba. Mm -hmm. So obviously immigration and, you know, uh, you know is, a, is a topic close to my heart. And whenever I hear that, oh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the Mexican nationals are coming over and taking our jobs and this and that, and I'm always wondering. I'm like, hey, um, the guy that hired him, why are we not after him? I mean, we may be, but maybe just because that's all I see on the news, mm -hmm. we always get you know all this anger and rhetoric towards the individual coming over and taking. I'm like, so we're mad at this guy taking over an opportunity. But the businessman who's really profiting of the fact that he can only pay this guy two bucks an hour and doesn't have to pay you, you know, eight dollars and twenty five cents. We're not mad at him. Yeah. Like we're not angry at that guy. We're angry at the guy who just wants to, you know, hey, give me whatever job you can. I'm going to send it back to my you know, family down in Mexico. Are you ready? Are you ready for me to bring your point uh, 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 to a, a segue of the fact that my day job is at a legal brothel? If you want to fight illegal sex trafficking, you don't worry about the hooker on the street corner you worry about the pimp oh you absolutely a hundred percent who is facilitating i am so problem. against arresting prostitutes my personal thing it's like look you know whatever the case may be but i, I so like you know i have a soft spot for a woman that's out in that area it's her body i realize that yes she's in danger by the way folks that are listening this is the conversation that frank had with the officer that pulled him over when he had the hooker in the car but go ahead yeah yeah <laughs> thought it sounded familiar. Uh, if that happened, I'd be dead. <laughs> Mrs. Mayor, two rounds in the back of the head while I'm sleeping tonight. Anyways, um, but I have, because, I mean, my history working at the Rhino, you know, as a bouncer, yeah. making ends meet before I was able to make a good living with the UFC, um, I have no love loss whatsoever. In fact, we tried passing the law now where pips, you know, here in Nevada fall under uh, human trafficking. It's a 25-year, yeah. and I'm like, good. Yeah. You live off of another woman's body and that she's going to put herself out there and do those things. And I see the guys in the club sitting there drinking, partying, taking the money. I'm like, what's I don't even get it. Like, I've even talked to a few of the girls that were you know, dancers and prostitutes and be like, why? Why are you having this guy? You're doing all the work. What? I, I don't I don't fathom it. I don't understand it. And then honestly, when I look at the guy, I mean, I, I'm just telling you right now, if you come up to me and you, you explain to me that you're a pimp, you better tell me you're reformed and you've seen the light. Because if you're currently doing that job, I think you're a scumbag. Yeah. I think that you are the lowest of the low. I put you on the same level of pedophiles and, you know, like you're, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> but, and you, but you know what? It's, it's, it's interesting you say that because for whatever reason, uh, those girls, and let's use them, you know, metaphorically as the electorate that that gives the unscrupulous businessman the free pass. For whatever reason, they are brainwashed to that. 
They yeah. are no, I feel that bad. guy they are gets a, a hold of them and he sells them a bill they're of goods. A Completely sell, a victim. He sells them a bill of goods and he convinces them that they're the problem, not him. And so when you when you put it like that, that's that's exactly what I want to see. I want that mentality to be reversed. I want people to look at again case by case basis, but I, I think there is probably nothing more un American than a successful person in the private sector uh, mistreating their employees or or doing substantially less for them than they could easily right. do. And there's Basically, plenty of that. Cutting out there. corners that is, it's it's a very disgusting thought process to sit there and go to your employees to cut jobs and lean out the job and to streamline it so you can make as much profit as possible so that you're like, you know, you're on your $50 million yacht traveling around. I'm like, wow, really? I mean, I understand it's your business and you want to make a good living and, mm-hmm. and that's great. But at a certain point when the, you know, you look at some of the CEOs of certain companies and it's like this guy makes, you know, you know X amount of million dollars a year. I'm like, really like mm-hmm. you couldn't have just passed an extra million to your employees that are working for you to build yeah. that kind of camaraderie that i mean come on it's an army if you think about it yeah. if i was the general of my army i'm not going to make sure that i'm living in a luxurious tent and my guys are sleeping under the stars it's like no i mean if i'm the general i think i should enjoy the perks of being in that type of stressful situation but at the same time i'm going to make sure my soldiers are happy and love me because it's like, well, hey, when we go and invade the other, you know, you're going to take, hey, we're sharing. I'll take 10%, 90% goes to you guys. You split it up. We're going to go. Obviously, I'm going to get a larger share because if I'm the mastermind behind this business, but not to the point to where I have 15 different houses throughout the whole country and you're living in an apartment. Yeah. That creates resentment. And then, yeah. and then your product and your workforce, how happy is that guy going to work? And you know what I think uh, uh, uh where that really manifests itself, that, that, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, the distortion, the, the, the distortion of, of the correct image of that, like you're just discussing is when, when the good old boys club gets together, all they're talking about is the country club membership and the, and the, all the houses like you're talking about, but also they're talking about, you know, their bottom line, their stock price, how their stock yeah, price absolutely. is doing. You know what? Well, I you would, have companies you, that come in. Like I remember when I, uh, in different jobs I've had yeah. before, you know, I do what I do now, <laughs> you know, you have people, I mean, you actually have businesses that come in and audit you. You, if I have a company right now, and I, you know, I have my bar, for example. Let's say I open up a bar, mm-hmm. you know, and I open up a chain of bars throughout the country. I could have a company audit me, come in and tell me, "Hey, Frank, you know how you have two bar backs that cost you this much at the end of the year, and insurance and fees and this. If you cut this bartender and just up this guy's workload, in fact, why don't you make your bartender salary? Now they can go ahead and work 50 hours a week, and you're only still paying for a 40-hour salary." Your bottom line just got a lot better, didn't it? Right. Here's what I would want to be. I would want to be the businessman that could sit at that table with the the other CEOs and say, uh, my employee over there, you know how long he's been with me? 50 years. Yes. Never wanted to go anywhere else. Uh, you know uh, what my turnover rate is at my company? You know, 2%. And we do have companies like that. I'm not villainizing all corporate companies. I'm I with mean, you. I have friends that work for Disney. Yeah. And, I, and not a single one of them is unhappy. 
I, I mean, not that I'm not saying that they're unhappy business employees, but they love their job. The amount of money they make, their perks, their benefits, the way that company takes care of them. There's a company that, you know, shout out to Disney, you know, mm. that f- from the people that I'm friends with that work for that company, they're pretty ecstatic about it. They like it. They're see, happy. I think that they're excited to go to work, not because they get to go see Mickey Mouse, you know. No, I think that is much more a badge of honor than any personal wealth or possessions I could show you as a business owner. It would be about showing you my content work for my army. Like you just said, you know, it is an army, man. That's how it is. That's your army. Yeah. Take care of your soldiers. And who do we, so, so let's, let's draw. I mean, we can get on a whole tangent on that and how America takes care of its soldiers. That's right. It infuriates me that some of the guys I train with that are military and they tell me the amount of money they make. Yep. And I know that we spend more money on our military budget than the next 26 countries in the world that are on that list going down. And I hear about guys and I'm like, looking at them, I'm like, you make how much a month? Mm-hmm. You have to endanger your life. You're going to go overseas. You have to not see your wife for nine months. You come over here and this is how we treat you. And then if we can get on the VA, I'll lose my mind. I'm well, like, you know who's making uh, exponentially more money than uh, that deployed military personnel overseas the is the private, private contractor hired by Halliburton that's working who's making right like next 10 to grand a m- That's right. I have a friend. So I have a friend in particular. I'm not going to sell him out. He did six years in the Marines, was a force recon, you know. Uh, you know, a general, you know, a badass. And when it came time for reenlistment, it wasn't even a question. After being overseas, hanging out with the private sector guys, he's all, they're not any more in danger than I am. Yeah. Um, that guy in six months is going to make 180 grand. Yeah. I won't make that in my four-year enlistment. And that goes to show you the inherent problem with blind trust in the private sector. That's my point. Follow the money. The money always shifts from public to private, not the other way around. That's why, you know, not only in your friend's example, but also in a much more nefarious uh, scenario, why uh, people who occupy cabinet positions in an administration then move they get hired to by the company in that was... the industry they were regulating. Oh, my. Yeah. That like when I see that and I watch it, I'm like, so that was him. And now he's the vice president of that company making 20 million dollars. a year. Hmm. Wow. You know, you know, huh. that was the guy that was supposed to be telling that he was the oversight. And now he yep. works for the company. Yeah, there, there's no law against that, that if you're the there's oversight not. in the government for that particular uh, industry for you now to be employed by it, it's common practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget that there's not a law. It's common practice. That's like one, yeah. when people bring it up, I'm like. Am I the only one that thinks this is insane? No, you don't you don't make that much as a as a public official, but what you're doing is you are banking influence exactly. so that you can cash the power is going to roll into money. That's right. And you're telling me that guy wasn't doing favors to go ahead and establish himself and stuff and be That's right. and that was his reward. Hey man, we need yeah. this to slide, we need this to go through. Don't look this way, lead them over here and I got a great job for you when your term is up. Yep. No, that's absolutely right. And that is why uh, I, I believe that, you know, all all capitalism is not inherently good. No. That that it can run them up just as easily as big government can, but at a much higher profit rate. And that's what you got to be concerned with. Follow the money. People are always going to go uh, where uh, where the money is. 
Yeah, you so know Connor, what? We have to go back to the Greeks. <laughs> I was going to say. Well, so the Connor Greeks McGregor. did it that way. They went ahead and had, <laughs> yeah. if you were in politics back then, yeah. you were given a stipend. Yeah, we were you talking about a, that. You had a spot. Yeah. You, know, you, had, you, know, you were comfortable. You had your robe, a little thing. But mm-hmm. you lived a very Spartanist type lifestyle because you were a public figure. Yeah. You did not profit from choosing to go ahead and go there. And there are people that are willing to do that. I, yeah. I hate that when people think that all humans are inherently evil. That Well, the only way to get somebody to do something to be an, 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 an invadive you know, if the guy's going to come up with a cure for this disease, if you want these kids doing this, I'm like, really? There's kids at MIT right now that ain't making nothing that are working on things and improving our lifestyle. There's computer programs and software programs and, and different, you know, uh, innovations that are occurring because humans are driven also to not just monetarily, but for fame, for recognition, for doing the good. So when you sit there and tell me like, well, you know, the capitalism is the only thing that's going to drive the system forward. I'm like, no, man, that's too simplistic, uh, too much of a simplistic viewpoint of human and desire and ambition. It's not true. You know, there's guys right now that I know that are martial artists and fight and don't do it because they're going to make any money. Yeah. Because they like to do it. Same thing with people that are physicians. There's doctors right now. There's kids in med school right now. I guarantee you that are not doing it thinking, well, I'm going to making $250,000, $500,000 a year doing this type of job. No, it's not true. It's, it's a perk. But really, I mean, you don't think right now I can go find some kid at medical school that's like, why'd you do this? Well, my father died when I was eight years old of a heart attack, and I've always been inspired to understand that and save people of that pain, and I want to aspire to better my life, uh, community. I'm like, yes, why can't we focus on this? That right there is the heaviest chunk of the podcast we've ever done. <laughs> I like it. I yeah. like it. Maybe well we, we, we get on some fighting here. Let's All go. right. So uh, <laughs> this uh, this past weekend, you and I went to the MMA Awards put on by uh, Fighters Only Magazine, and uh, it's the I think was it the ninth? I can't remember what number they've done, but it's it they've, they've been doing it for a number of years. Uh, it's a it's a really incredible production here in Las Vegas. An annual event usually happens right around the big uh, Super Bowl weekend card the UFC puts on. And it's uh, where Fighters Only Magazine, where their readers honor uh, mixed martial arts fighters and in some cases announcers and referees. It's basically an annual best of. And uh, this year it was at the Venetian. And uh, you and I uh, both went along with uh, Ricky Lundell. And uh, uh, it was a a star-studded affair. Uh, There were uh, any number of recognizable uh, MMA luminaries there. And uh, I want to ask you in a moment what your uh, personal favorite experience of the 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 night was. But I'm going to tell you mine. So I was sitting uh, I was sitting right behind you. I don't know. Did you notice that that I was sitting next to Rafael Cordero? I don't know if you noticed or no, not. Okay, so so you're you and your family right in front of uh, myself and my girlfriend, and so I've got I've got her to my right, and I've got Rafael Cordero to my left. Now he wins Coach of the Year, and uh, he was you know King's MMA, and he gave a he's very excited acceptance speech and real happy with himself and and proud and congratulated him and everything when he came back to his seat. So fast forward to Conor McGregor's acceptance speech of uh, Fighter of the Year that we all saw, right? It was an insane uh, acceptance speech. I was backstage. I got to hear it a little bit. Oh, okay, okay. It was was weird, though. Yeah. I quite, I got to be honest with you. Yeah. I didn't get it. I'm kind of going, is he funny? Is he crazy? I've got the audio. We can listen to it. I've got the audio because what happens is he's not there to accept his award. And so uh, he wins Fighter of the Year. Listen to his acceptance speech. And 
knowing that I'm sitting next to Rafael Cordero, who trains uh, not only Rafael dos Anjos, but also Fabricio Verdum, see if you can pick out the point where it got very awkward for me to be sitting next to Rafael Cordero. <laughs> Here we go. So What's up, everybody? I'd like to thank the Flyers Only World MMA Awards. I want to thank you for last year's award, which I couldn't also couldn't collect. Um, the Breakthrough Fire of the Year it was an honor again to break through and kill the entire game in less than two years. Now nobody, nobody can touch me. Um, but I apologize for not being uh, there. There's another man that must be, must be slayed. Another champion that must be dethroned. There's more numbers that need to be broken. I need to feed all you bums. I need to feed every single one of you in the game, so I've got to keep walking. Because you, you bums don't walk. You got the heavyweight champion. He's a pussy. Uh -oh. saw top. That was the heavyweight champion gonna pull out with a saw top. What kind of champion is that? The game is on its knees. So, I apologize, I can't be there. At the awards, but I'm out here putting it in, walking, putting in the true walk, the walk it takes to keep every one of you fed. So thank you and thank me. So he, yeah. so he's, uh, you know, it it starts off with the typical Conor McGregor stick, and I'm sitting there, and you know, even though he's he's Rafael dos Anjos's uh, coach, it's you know, Conor's been talking the smack here for a while, so everybody's laughing, I'm laughing, Jennifer's Fabricio laughing, Park, we're all laughing, yeah. And as soon as he calls Fabricio Verdum the p word, it's like I look to my left, kind of out of my peripheral, because I know he's sitting there, and and Rafael Cordero's expression has just gone stone faced, right? And so then. It, then I have to assume the role of, well, this isn't funny. Well, that's just not funny at all, is it? That's this is uh, well now. I never, you know. <laughs> you're like, you know, I'm Canadian, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like when you know you're in the comedy club and you know somebody's making the 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 racial joke, you know, and you're looking around to see what minorities might be sitting around you or something like that. Yeah, it was uh, it it was it was very uh, very funny, very awkward. It's well, funny. I have a very yeah. similar experience, but it didn't happen at that uh -huh. uh, particular uh, event. Um, as far as uh, that night, I, I really liked the whole sketch when they called out Man of the Year and you know Ray Seth who walked up there and they did a little bit of a spoof on uh, you know the uh, uh, the American uh, the, uh, the 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 Miss uh, Steve Universe. Harvey Miss Steve yeah. Harvey yeah. because because Dana White wins this every year yeah and and they announced Ray Seffo as the winner and then they were like in the Steve Harvey uh, right. uh, voice yes. oh sorry we made a terrible mistake yes. and then Dana comes on the video but more yeah. to along the lines of what you yeah. went through uh, a couple of years back when Chael Sonnen was up on stage uh, as the uh, host. They went through and started putting a uh, you know a montage to all the fighters that had retired that year. Uh, I think BJ might have been one, and I don't mm -hmm. remember particular ones because it was a year that a couple uh, name fighters, I think Randy Couture, you know, whatnot, were were calling it you know uh, you know a retirement. And he put Vandalay Silva up on there, 
And I'm sitting there, and I happen to be sitting right next to Vandalay Silva. And 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 Chael Sonnen's a funny guy. The things he oh, says yeah, is yeah. outlandish, yeah. You know, and but it's it's witty and it's funny. And I take it for what it is that it's a comedy skit in a way, you know. And you know, and I don't read anything deeper into the fact that it is what it is. And it's well done. It's well played out. It's well yeah. thought out. Well written. So hey, I, I appreciate. It. I laugh. So here I'm laughing, laughing, laughing. You know, and, and then when he put the Vandalay Silva thing up there. It was a joke to Vandalay needs to retire, basically, I guess. And I, all of a sudden, Vandalay's like, this, no, no, man, you know, this is not funny. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, oh, it is so funny, and I want to laugh right now. <laughs> but I don't really want to upset the guy. Yeah. You, know, I, you know, I mean, obviously, we're not going to break into a fight or anything, right. you know, Vandalay at the end of his, you know. Um, uh, you know, I still would have came out on top on that one. But, you know, <laughs> that being said, just out of respect, again, where I'm sure. like, Oh man, he just took a pot shot at Vandalay. Yeah, and damn it, it's a good one, and I can't laugh. <laughs> well, and that's you know, and the the uh, well, could they have sat me somewhere else if they're going to make this joke. <laughs> and that's that's part of it, you know. The the Chales and the Connors, I, I think, a lot of times are actually fueled by um, the 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 folks who don't get the joke, you know, or who even if they get it, they don't find it funny or whatever. That's actually what gives their uh, their rhetoric so much fuel you know is to have because it's not gonna be any fun on on a side note so people can understand i mean i'm a fan of all different kind of comedians uh, you know everybody you know bill burr you know obviously i'm a huge fan of but uh i like anthony jeselnik last night we were falling asleep to him my wife was you know know, first we had a hannibal burris and she still was kind of on her phone you know and he's i I enjoy him too he's a very funny guy but i wasn't getting the reaction i wanted out of my wife you know like she was more interested in her Instagram at that moment, you know, looking at different pictures, of, you know, not her Instagram, but Instagram in general, you know, she's on the little fit models and different girls that work out programs and whatever the case is, makeup and, you know, whatever makes girls happy. But anyways, you know, I'm a guy I want, I'm like, Hey man, I got TV on. I want you to share this with me. So I turned it off and put the Netflix special on a Jesselneck and man, he says things that are like, Whoa. Yeah. And then you laugh. And he really attacks society's taboos. So, so when I say that I enjoy the humor, I mean, I just want the fans to understand where I'm coming from. I like when people attack taboos. I like when people point out the elephant in the room or bring things up and make you think about something. It's like, are we allowed to even talk about that, let alone laugh about it? I'm like, hey, man, are you thinking right now? Are you thinking? Yeah. That's awesome because that's what I really want to get out of this. I want to think when we're done. That is, you know what? <laughs> It's so weird when you just said that because I, 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 this is no exaggeration. I was in bed last night with a girl named Jennifer who was looking at her Instagram and I was trying to figure out what we needed to watch to redirect the attention. Jesselnack would have done it. Different Jennifer, same scenario. Yeah, crazy. Netflix, uh, man, he has a good special on yeah. it. It was great. So uh, I also want to talk about what happened uh, the next night. So we were there uh, Friday, and then uh, the next night was uh, UFC Fight Night at uh, the MGM Grand, UFC Fight Night 82, Hendricks versus Thompson, that, of course, was originally supposed to be the pay-per-view that was going to be headlined by the heavyweight title match between Fabricio Verdum and Cain Velasquez. That's what you heard Conor McGregor being critical of there, uh, the champ of Verdum pulling out uh, with injury after Cain Velasquez yeah, had done part, the same. Honestly, I mean, McGregor does a few things that kind of bother me a little bit. And that, not that, look, everybody's open for criticism and he can have his opinion on how, you know, maybe that he should have fought anyways that he's the champ. But I mean, still, man, that, that's the heavyweight champ of our organization, yeah. Connor. 
Yeah. The same belt that's around your waist, that's around his waist. Yeah. There, there has. I feel that there still now has to be a certain form of respect. You're not even selling a fight. You're not going to fight Verdum. You break both your arms, and you know. I mean, I've seen what you could do on the ground. Um, you know, he, he's a hundred pounds bigger than you. He's the heavyweight champ. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's my old school mindset of a little bit of respect gets to be paid towards mm-hmm. a, a guy that really does push the sport. Verdum is a great role model. I mean. Did he handle the whole pulling out of the fight exactly how I wish he would have handled it? No, I don't agree, but I don't think you can sum up his whole title reign in one uh, event. Whereas, I mean, the guy is constantly with social media, moving around. He's on, he does, I mean, in yeah. Mexico, he does all commentating. The guy is good for the sport. I think he's a great representation of a good person who has the belt that works hard. I've seen Verdun, anybody who follows the guy. That guy isn't a slacker. That guy trains hard. When we were in Russia together, his cell phone, that was before he fought. Um, uh, he ended up fighting Hunt because Kane got hurt. But he had his phone, a picture of the title. He's like, no, that's all I see every morning, every day for mm. the last year. I train, I focus, I'm getting this title. And he goes out and does it. So to sit there and, and call him and demean him that way, I'm like, hey, man, there's a lot of young kids out there. That Verdum is a very good role model for. Yeah. If my children right now came up to me and go, hey, dad, I really like Verdum. He does it this way. I'm going to do it this way. I'm not upset. I'm like, yeah, son, you know what? That's a good person to go ahead and mimic. That guy has a great work ethic. He has a great personality. He doesn't take things a little too serious. He's able to bring some lightness to it because he is a the guy is a professional fighter that can, you know, mm-hmm. you know, he's a killer, you know. And at the same time, he can be very disarming and, and approach different areas of uh, the, you know, uh, uh, of the social spectrum that might be turned off by the brutality of uh, the of the, that they think of the um, the. Uh, the uh, image that they perceive could be of MMA. He's a great role model. I mean, he's great personality. So, I mean, a joke here or there, you know, like the Instagram thing that he, you know, they, they said like Instagram app that they did at the uh, MMA wars where it was like the Verdum and it was nothing on there. Like, you know, he doesn't show up. They uh, gave you your uh, Faber's butt chin. Yes, they did. It was funny. <laughs> Laugh at it, man. Um, but the, uh, the kind of, th- that shot he took, that Connor kind of took him for doom. Yeah, you know what? That's the second time that he's done something that that I didn't agree with. I think, when he grabbed yeah. Jose Aldo's belt, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. still not a fan of that act. Again, I'm like, dude, that's the champ. Jose earned that belt. Yeah, he might not have beat you, but he beat other top level fighters to earn that belt. You don't snatch that belt, man. Come on, man. That's disrespectful. Yeah. What would you do if someone did that to you? I mean, I'm I'm thinking. Come on, man. I, I don't know. That that upset me. And, I, and again, McGregor's been proving it in the ring. You know, I mean, hey, 13-second knockout. I can't argue. He beat Mendez, who I think is one of the best fighters right under, you know, right up there. Um, you know, I, I'm still a firm believer that the fight with uh, uh, Dos Anjos is a smart move because I think Frankie Edgar has his number. I mean, if yeah. I, I that doesn't take anything from Connor. I just think Frankie Edgar is a phenom technically and just in every aspect is you know one he's my pound for pound best fighter in the world so you know that's my thought on that that you know hey it's a safer bet to go and go with dos años because i think you know edgar poses a legitimate threat but i still think connor's a phenomenal fighter there's things now i do in practice that i've been watching him do you know the sidekick to the leg the way he set up the straight left hand his in and out movement i'm like hey man those angles are great you know there's some things he's really doing 
that shot, I just don't see how that benefited him. You know, putting food in the mouth, the different things like that, like that was an outlandish statement that still could, you know, like, hey, that, that was still fine. I'm a fighter that he, I'm one of the people that he brought up in that conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm contracted with the UFC. Didn't offend me. But uh, the shot at Verdum, I didn't like. I, I just got to be honest with you. I was like, I don't know. I'm like, hey, man, Verdum's a champ. Verdum's not my best friend. Uh, I mean, we've hung out in in professional uh, uh, scenarios in traveling to do appearances and seminars. Um, I've never eaten lunch at the guy's house. The guy's never come over to my house for dinner. That being said, the guy's a champ, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know. I feel there's a certain line of respect that should still be afforded to a fellow champion who has that strap around his waist. Well, here's what I think is happening with, with Conor McGregor's comedic arc is I think that all of, he has to, to, at this point, because of the level of attention that he's getting, he, 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 the, the pressure <laughs> is on, yes, the pressure is on him to one-up himself continually. And so I think what's happening, and also do the same with fight performances. And those are getting more and more spectacular, right? Now, the thing is, at this point, he's going up, 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 up like this, like all the way to the top of a mountain. Now, what could very well happen is, let's say he loses to uh, Rafael Dos Angeles. Let's say he finally, you know, bites off more than he can chew, to use the old expression. In theory, you would want your bravado to be neck and neck with your physical achievement right up until the point that both of them cease, till both of them crash. And then okay. what you do is maybe you reinvent yourself at that point. I don't think if Conor McGregor is going to still be fighting in the UFC 10 years from now, I don't know that he can be the same level of conor mcgregor in terms of the bravado like we're talking about no it's gonna it, look i mean he would probably have everybody to everybody fights long enough in the ufc um the only person i can think of so far that's pretty much ran through everybody is john mm -hmm. jones mm -hmm. and you know and obviously the uh the outside octagon life you know is mm -hmm. what ultimately uh took his title from him but uh, that being said, I mean, we're the best of the best. Mm -hmm. The top 95% of a fighting talent of the world, the top tier is in this organization. Just sort of sit there and say that you're going to be on. I mean, nobody was more untouchable than Ronda Rousey. Mm -hmm. Leading up to that fight, I mean, the girl armbarred everybody in the first round or knocked them out in the first round except one person, Misha Tate, was able to make it you know, into the third and still got armbarred. But case in point, Ronda Rousey, when she comes back, will need to reinvent a little bit. She does, bit. and I think and she's struggling with it, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. The, you first saw the indications of she didn't have a plan B for when I'm not the dominant yeah. one. Was, uh, and as a fighter, I've had to... Now, I'm speaking from experience. I've been on the bad side of an ass-whooping um, in a title fight, and they held me at the cage and said, hey, Frank, you know, we're going to do an interview. Now, I'm a 265-pound professional fighter. If I say that I'm leaving the cage, the production crew probably doesn't have a lot to say in that matter. Um, I could leave the cage. But I sat there and realized, no, you know what? I came in here. If I had won, I'd be cheering. I lost. It's time for uh, me to own up and explain. And, and you know, if, this is part of it, too, uh, to also not only to, to win fights. I'm ambitious to win. But in loss, I'm also now this is a moment to show, hey, look, life is full of failures. I'm going to teach my children and and try to also improve upon myself to show how do I handle defeat. Mm -hmm. And so that was one. The first indication I'm like, oh, we might be running into a problem here was when Rhonda 
left the cage. She didn't yeah. give a post-fight interview. Now, she got kicked in the head. Yeah, I got punched in the head really hard several times by Junior Dos Santos. Um, you know, so I mean, hey, you know, that's definitely not an apples and oranges situation. I, I can relate with the uh, the devastation of the hit. Um, her not staying, and then again, now the you know the reward award show came up and not being present uh, as you know, and kind of almost kind of falling off the map here in the uh, MMA world. Yeah, it's like, hey, you know, I know you lost, and it's embarrassing now to come up in front of people, but that's going to strengthen your metal. You know, it's not easy. Hey, it's easy to walk into a room after you're the winner. But do you have the testicular fortitude to walk into a room after you just got your ass kicked? Yeah. Like, that takes strength. It's like, can you come home and tell your wife and walk in there with a bunch of people and say, I lost my job today? That takes strength. Yeah. That takes fortitude to sit there and go, I failed, and this is why, and I'm going to stand up here and say I'm going to improve, but I'm not running from it. I'm not going to go hide. I'm not going to go disappear and jump into the mountains for three months. Yes, I failed. I put out my best. I tried. This other person was better. But I'm still a warrior, and this is part of being a warrior is in defeat to still stand here. And it's it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. The critics, everybody's like, ha-ha, I got you. And you have to sit there and take those rocks thrown your way. But, hey, that's part of the game, and it makes you a better person. Let me play you a little audio of a guy who did exactly that Saturday night. Uh when I asked him a question in the post-fight press conference, and that was Johnny Hendricks, who lost to Stephen Wonderboy Thompson in the very first round, finished via TKO for the first time in his career. But Johnny Hendricks was not making excuses and uh, and and answered the questions, uh, much like uh, Frank was saying he felt uh, a responsibility to do as well. Here's myself talking to Johnny Hendricks after the fight. Question for Johnny Hendricks. Johnny, we uh, talked a lot this week about your conditioning, how good you looked. You talked about it yourself. How did that translate to fight night? How did you feel tonight compared to, to other other fights? Oh, I felt good. Take nothing away from that. Steven Thompson was just a better man tonight. What can I say? You know, he, he performed. I hesitated. You know, I don't hesitate, usually. <laughs> uh, but, again, it, a lot of it goes into preparation. You know, uh, yeah. I, I switched camps and all these other kind of things, but no excuses. He was just a better man. You know, like I said, I, whenever I got my partners, whenever I closed that distance, I, they would bite down and they'd have to throw back. Where tonight, he didn't do that. You know, every time I got close and I landed a punch or anything, he was still circling out trying to, uh, trying to evade, 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 evade. We knew he would do some of that. I didn't think it would be to that extent. You know, and so now that I realize, all right, well, how do you beat that? You know, that's what I'm thinking right now. I, you know, the fight is in the past. Now I'm sitting here going, all right, he's the way he evaded. He was going from his southpaw, and then he would start circling to his to his left, and then all of a sudden he would switch to a right-handed stance. All right, how do I cut off that corner? That's how my brain's working right now. It's still not, you know, I'm still trying to figure out. If somebody beats me, how do I beat them? Because I'm pretty sure I'm going to see him again. And if I see him again, I want to make sure that it's not the same outcome. That's Johnny Hendricks. 
doing exactly what you said, Frank, which is even in defeat, you know, having, uh, having the, 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 the honesty. The honesty. Yeah. Honesty and the, is a tough thing and, to and the, the, the gumption, I mean, the, you know, the strength to talk about not only being defeated, but how he was defeated. I'll tell you something, uh, well before this, Johnny Hendricks, uh, and I always credit him with this. I've done this publicly before on Twitter. I interviewed him a number of times. He is always a great interview because he hears the question you ask him, he thinks about it, and he gives you a, a, a thoughtful answer. And you and I have talked about that yes. in previous weeks about, you know, he's the opposite of the guy who goes, well, just going to go out, you know, I'm ready for wherever the fight goes. And, uh, you know, we're just going to get out there and the guy who comes out on top is going to win or some generic statement like that. Johnny Hendricks is the opposite of that. And uh, he probably doesn't get enough credit for it because he's he's from where I am from, the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, originally from Oklahoma, but he lives in Fort Worth, Texas now, which is where I was born. But, you know, he's he's got the good old country boy thing. Yeah. So I think a lot of times he gets overlooked for his ability to articulate. And I actually think he's very good at, at yes. doing this, and he always well, gives great answers and to questions. And here's an example of how people can look at failures in their life and how you handle that failure can definitely temper your steel to make you better prepared in the future. No guarantee that you're not going to fail again. There's no magic button. But as far as overall, you can sleep at night knowing that you are a more fierce human being. You yep. are a better person. Here's something, you know, here, I guess pull off Wikipedia, because I know of the particular match, because I happen to be watching the NCAAs his senior year where he ended up losing, right? Well, here's the background here. Um, he's a two-time high school national champion. You're talking about Johnny Hendricks. Johnny yeah. Hendricks, yeah. right? His final, his final high school record was 101-5. and five. Well, Then he went to Oklahoma. His first year, he got fifth at NCAAs, you know, national championships, right? Uh, his sophomore, junior years, he wins it. He's the NCAA champion. His senior year, he's going into it, he's 56-0. and 0. He's the favorite. I mean, he, this looks like it's going to be the three-peat of an NCAA title. He goes in there and he wrestles a guy, Mark Perry, that he's beaten every other time that they've wrestled. I think previously when I watched the show, it's not saying this on Wikipedia, but I remember watching the announcers talking that they had wrestled each other six times previously before. Johnny Hendricks won all six matches. In the NCAA finals, he loses. He ends up getting second. He's the former two-time national champion, loses a senior year. That defeat obviously could have crushed him. But then, you know, less than a year later, he goes into MMA. He drives forward from it. He still had to go to school that day. You don't think that on campus people talked to him and jeered at him and the guys that finally were jealous of him, that this guy, national champion multiple times over, they don't feel like they can get their pot shots in. Mm. He could have hid. He could have went into obscurity. But he stood there and took it and still came forward as a competitor. And so because of that type of platform that he set here's another situation where in defeat i feel that johnny's going to come back and be stronger because of how he dealt with his failure and that's an important attribute to teach people that are young watching our sport we're role models we are man it just it is what it is and so if i could sit there and tell my children like hey 
you are not going to go through life undefeated. There's never been a human being in his life that, whether it's in competition, whether it's at work, whether it's in relationships, you're going to have losses. You're going to do stupid things. You're going to make mistakes. How do you deal with those mistakes? How do you move forward? Mm -hmm. And then when you fail at dealing with those mistakes, how do you recover? How do you try to rebound and come back? And so that's what I'm, I respect in him so much because it's something I can look right now and click on the television and my kids and say, hey, guys, you want to see a man? Look at that guy. You're like, yeah, but he's the one that got knocked out in a round. I understand. But this is more to life than just that. Look at how he's dealing with it. And then if someone goes, oh, I'm a fan of Ronda, I'm like, ooh, ah, nah. she walked out of the ring, the interviews. It, it, it scares me to know that maybe that's not the way to handle it. And it's like, well, how are you going to grow from this? How are you gonna, is, it obviously bugs her so bad. Well, is she going to fight tentatively the next time she fights? Is she going to fight? I've done that myself, so I'm not you know, accusing that it's a bad thing, where now are you going to fight not to lose, not to get a highlight reel knockout to where you're sitting there and the girl that knocks you out wins knockout of the year, so now you're like basically the, the kid on the poster, the Michael Jordan slamming, and you're the one that he's dunking on. It's embarrassing, but hey, if you want to be a, a competitor and fight and you want to go out in life and challenge life, there is that chance that you're going to fail crashing and burning. That unless you die from that experience, you can come back from it and keep growing. And so that's why I like fighters when I see them go through adversity. How do they come back from it? It's really honestly, I like everybody. Hey, man, you win the fight. Obviously, everybody's gracious, humble, and, and good. Or you know, other people's case, maybe not so gracious and humble. But it's easy to be the cool guy when you're winning. What do you do when you lose? And so that's why with that whole situation with Hendricks, I was so impressed with him. Hey, man, getting knocked down the first round sucks. That's a pretty high-profile fight. How did he handle it? I felt he handled it like a champ. Very well said, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, uh, you know, Johnny Hendricks uh, is is going to come back uh, m much better and, and, and stronger and continue to be, you know, here was a guy who was right on the cusp of getting or at least making a case for uh, another welterweight title shot, a rubber match between him and Robbie Lawler. I think we could still uh, very easily see that uh, at some point sooner than later. He's, he's probably at this point going to have to win one or two more, but it's going to be interesting to see his evolution and the way that he comes back. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson looked fantastic Saturday night, and uh, this guy is just going to present a very unique uh, stylistic problem for anybody that he encounters. And, you know, all the talk, Frank, in the post-fight press conference was – does Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, by virtue of being the first guy to ever finish Johnny Hendricks via TKO and doing it in the first round, does he make a claim for the next welterweight title shot against Robbie Lawler? You got Tyron Woodley sitting over there in the wings. He hadn't fought in about a year, and, and he feels like that's his shot. But when you talk about a compelling matchup, Johnny Hendricks was asked this himself. Like, you know, how you've fought both these guys now, Thompson and Lawler. How do you think Lawler would fare? And he was like, man, that's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, and, yeah. and, 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 and in my mind, I mean, in my mind, there's a lot of things to the game that other guys aren't yeah. doing. And in my mind, when he said it, I was thinking, man, you know, that might be a really tough challenge for Robbie Lawler. Yeah. Uh, now the, which uh, is cool on, on a quick note on yeah. uh, Stephen Thompson, 
I like it because I felt I came from a traditional martial arts background doing, you know, my first black belt under my father and the Kimpo karate. Yeah. Um, for a long time, the UFCs become such a grappling based, the wrestlers and, you know, jujitsu guys and whatnot kind of dominated, you know, a few of the good strikers are champs, you know, and do well, but, um, obviously they're kind of more the outliers. And so you have a lot of guys that, you know, I, I remember it broke my heart one time I read in uh, black belt magazine that Bill Wallace, a person who's a personal hero of mine doesn't enjoy it. He's like, oh, it's barbaric. They mm. grab each other. There's no finesse in it. And so now, I mean, if you think about it, there's more kids right now enrolled in karate classes throughout the states than there are in, in, in any other aspect. I mean, maybe now I'm pushing it out with jiu-jitsu becoming such a rise. But I really feel that in Thompson and Machida kind of started laying that way. And even myself now, in my own training, I've added so much more where before you know, I had Muay Thai coaches, ah, don't do that kick. I'm like, Really, that's wrong. And then now I'm like watching other guys knock people out with it. I'm like, hey, you know what? Every move has its application. Maybe it's not as wrong as you guys think it is. And so adding things that's actually that I did 15 years ago, I'm doing now in practice and enjoying it. And so I think it really kind of brings back some of the other martial artists in our in the world of martial arts that I think don't enjoy the UFC because they don't relate with it. And then so now all the guys down at like the you know the, the local dojos down at the school, they can look at it and go, wow, that kid used a move that I know that I can work on. And and obviously there's more to the game that Thompson also understands grappling and movement and whatnot. But uh, I see it as a positive. I really like it going, ah, okay, I can we can maybe bring some of these guys back in the fold saying, hey man, the stuff you have, it does work. Do you have to apply it differently and have different preparation because the individuals are going to grab you, throw you against the cage? Wonder Boy has losses because of the, you know, loss, yeah. you know, being shoved against the cage and, and, and grounded that way. But he's adapted and still used that same skill set. He didn't throw it away going, hey, karate doesn't work. It's like, well, no, these work, but I have to make sure I stay here and do this and do that. He adapted and evolved, which, you know, as a kid, you know, Kempo Karate, one of the sayings we had, it's not the water in the vessel, but the vessel upon the water, mm. being a free motion. I mean, Bruce Lee, look at, you know, he, you know, he really was the first MMA guy that I can think of that really understood the ranges of fighting. And you read some of his literature back in the late 60s and 70s about what he said. And now we have these guys that are doing it. And it's like, see, it can work. You just have to tweak your training, make it a little bit more realistic, you know, uh, for what's going on, you know, and what we're doing. And I, I, I think it's a positive. I think we can bring back some of the people that have been disenfranchised by MMA going, well, if I'm not a college wrestler or a black belt in jiu-jitsu, how can I compete? And it's like, no, see, you can learn those skills too, but the skills you've, you've spent your whole life working on, they still work too. We just got to apply them a little different, make some adjustments. Hey, even jujitsu makes adjustments. You're blue belt in jujitsu. We go do an MMA fight. You're not going to exactly do every move that you've done with your gi. Yeah. Isn't going to be the same way you've had to do it in the MMA world. I've had to make adjustments. Why doesn't karate have to make adjustments? But I think too many people have been throwing the baby with the bathwater going, eh, it don't work. I'm like, oh, no, 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 it works, it works. And it's, it drives me nuts, especially working with Angela Reyes now, who's also started out as a black belt in Kempo before he went to boxing and really has a great hybrid together. Now that we're really working on the kicks and doing things together, I'm like, man. I knew some of this stuff 15 years ago, and I had guys telling me, that's garbage. Don't throw a kick that way. And then I watched Conor McGregor kick you know, uh, Jose Aldo twice in the knee and made him jump in before he caught him with a straight left. I'm like, hey, guys, you know that in-and-out side kick to the leg he just yeah. did? Uh, that's karate. 
and it worked really well. Uh, I don't know. I've seen, you know, a retired Randy Couture, who's a phenomenal fighter, but Machida did the jump chicken kick off the lead leg and knocked his teeth out, yeah. you know? I mean, it does work. But again, same mentality. You can't just do straight college wrestling and have no MMA experience and jump in the octagon and go, I'm going to win. Well, well, no, no, it's different. The foundations, and we're going to make some adjustments. Boxing, you can't go from pure boxing to go, well, I'm just going to just box in the ring. Well, no, don't throw it away, but let's make some tweaks. And now, finally, I think people are seeing that the karate aspects too, which brings those guys back going, hey, no, no, it works it's going to work a little differently, but you know, that kick, you know, well, you have to throw it here and then you got to be ready for the guy's probably not going to throw the same kick back. He might change levels and shoot. So after you throw the kick, be ready to hit him with a side kick, which is exactly what wonder boy did. He threw the, the kick came through, set up the side kick to the body, which ended up setting up the hook kick to the head. It's like, it's like, see, he adjusted for what he was facing. He didn't sit there and go, Hey, these karate skills I have dump them. no, Let's use them, but adjust them for MMA, which to me is silly. Like, I feel so dumb that I didn't come up with that myself. It's like, well, I've done that with jujitsu. We've done that with wrestling. We do it with Muay Thai. Muay Thai is not done exactly in the octagon as it's done in a Muay Thai fight. There's adjustments made. So why all of a sudden was karate really just regated to this, eh, it's garbage, don't work. And now I'm like, well, I don't know, man, Machida knocked out a bunch of people and you know and, and now you see wonder boy and mcgregor i know they talk about his boxing but i really think it's his karate mm -hmm. that in and out sidekick and kicks that he does the spin mendez himself said it after the fight the spin kicks to the body the heel shots really hurt him and caught his attention yeah. and so now he's like oh my body hurts and now the punch to the face came that was a karate setup that's adjustments and so I'm very happy with what Wonder Boy's done. People can see it, and and I'm just to me, it's nothing but positive. All of that, and Stephen Wonder Boy Thompson is the only UFC fighter who walks out to Tenacious D, which I love. <laughs> it's awesome. Hey, we'll we'll end on this, uh, Frank. I'll tell you a little uh, juicy tidbit I heard from a very reliable source. Uh, we're talking about what might be next for Robbie Lawler. You know, should Stephen Wonderboy Thompson get the title shot? Should Tyron Woodley get it? He's been waiting. Um, Conor McGregor uh, is going to fight Rafael Dos Anjos at uh, uh, UFC 196, March 5th. We know that. Uh, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with you that uh, that Frankie Edgar is a real problem for Conor McGregor. He's got a tough weight cut every time he goes to 145, and uh, it it is being increasingly rumored again from uh, from from a reliable source I heard it from that he doesn't want to return to 145. Dig this. That source tells me that if Conor McGregor defeats Rafael dos Anjos on March 5th, that in the octagon, he will call out Robbie Lawler for UFC 200. Wow. Um, what does he have to lose? Why not? Why not? He has to keep one up. He has to keep uh, uh, up in the ante, right? He has yeah. to keep one up in himself. That's one of those things that even if you fail, will be historic and improve and up his status. Yeah. I'm all for it. The fact that they're allowing him to do that uh, and move up. And, um, uh, and obviously, they have a lot of trust that – you know, that uh, mm -hmm. McGregor's going to stay with the company because, I mean, that's a lot of emphasis to put on one human being that, you know, uh, that he becomes basically the show. He takes out two or three champions. That hurts 
that's the only problem I kind of have with it is it kind of hurts the divisions themselves. You kind of take away, there's an aspect of like, okay, so if we lose Connor, what respect do we have for yeah. these weight classes? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I know that the Rafael Dos Anjos, I can go back and forth on, you know, that there are opportunities of what I see McGregor could pull the win off. Um, I, I'm still not willing to bet on him because of the, you know, the, the, the takedowns of Rafael. But uh, I got to be honest with you, as of right now, I would not bet that McGregor can. I mean, uh, Lawler can get crushed with some pretty. I mean, he got kicked in the head by Roy McDonald and um, he recovers and moves through. I can't imagine that he's going to generate enough power to put uh, uh, Lawler down. But that being said, as I made that statement, I remember back in the day, this is going back a few years, I was there when Nate. Uh, or uh, Nick was Nick. Nick threw a, a kind of weird shot, hook kick, and then a punch, uh, the hook, uh, and knocked out Robbie Lawler with yeah. a shot that I wouldn't have thought yeah. would knock him out. Caught him just perfectly. So, and uh, so you know it happens. I actually personally, the fight I would want to see if we talk about a perfect matchup, I want to see Nate Diaz and uh, Conor McGregor fight. Yeah, I agree. I think, in fact, I was having that conversation in the uh, in the press box. Uh, with uh, uh, another radio guy, and this was uh, we were waiting for uh, Hendricks and Thompson to start. This was before the we knew the outcome of that fight. But I was saying that same thing. I said the build up for that thing would be fantastic. One way or another, you got to get Conor McGregor on that UFC 200 card. And uh, uh, fortunately for the UFC, there's a couple of very compelling options there. Not necessarily all of them in the bantamweight or the lightweight division. So keep your eye on that Robbie Lawler call out. All right, that's going to do it for this week we could go on for so much longer but uh, i think the rest of the mirror family probably like to go to bed frank before we solve every one of the world's problems we have to save a few for next week okay yes we got a lot to get into next week i'm just can i just a quick uh, rundown of things we did not talk about this week that uh, we got to talk about next week first of all cm punk is having some back surgery his debut in the ufc is going to be delayed we got to talk about hoist gracie and ken shamrock coming up february 19th uh, we've got to talk about uh, your heavyweight division, Ben Rothwell and Junior Dos Santos. That fight has been made for UFC 86 on April the 10th, and not to mention uh, uh, the least of which is certainly not the fact that we finally have a date for the rematch of John Jones and Daniel Cormier. That's going to be UFC 197, also right here in Las Vegas on April 23rd, with a co-main event of Henry Cejudo getting his flyweight title shot against Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. Demetrius, by the way, wants to come on the show with us and guest host a whole show oh, okay awesome. so i told him i told him Absolutely. we'd be up for doing that so uh uh, pl uh expect that uh sometime in the coming weeks especially now that he's got his next fight announced and when he's in vegas we'll uh we'll have him do that with us also before we conclude frank i want to give a uh, quick shout out to one of our listeners jeremy rowe of uh, Charleston, West Virginia. He subscribes to us and listens every week. And uh, he, he loves phone booth fighting. And he wanted me to tell you, Frank, specifically that he's a longtime fan and that he wants you to, quote, get that title back. Awesome. I so, like that. All right. So that's what he's looking for uh, out of you, putting uh, putting together one more title run here. And obviously it's going to start with uh, Mark Hunt coming up on March 19th over there in Australia. Once again, a big thank you to our fine sponsors, Real Water, Get Real at DrinkRealWater.com and TrentCotney.com. You can follow that man, Frank Mir, on social media, Twitter and Instagram at TheFrankMir. You can follow me on social media, 
Twitter and Instagram at Richard Hunter and follow the show on uh, Instagram at Phone Booth Fighting and on Twitter at Phone Booth Fight. You can subscribe to the podcast each and every week in iTunes or go to PhoneBoothFighting.com and get it directly from there. Uh, for Frank, I'm Richard, and we'll see you right back here next week for another edition of Phone Booth Fighting. Everybody was Kung Fu Fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with